Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 23, Her Charm. My first guess is I'm not here for a date. Oh, no. Not you. Definitely not a date. We could have been killed back there. Well, we weren't. No thanks to you. Anna Berenger, one-time personal secretary to a certain Nick Kochafus. He kills Dana. When she realized what kind of man she was working for, she went to the Justice Department with what she knew, and she gave enough to put Kochafus away for life. That was a year ago, and in the meantime, she's been on the witness protection program. The federal prosecutor promised me that Nick would be put away for life. Protect me! He kills her at 318 this afternoon. There was a cabin up in the Berkshires. That's where I'll take her, to Professor Lonegro's cabin. Then we're not going to Baltimore. No, 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 she gets murdered on the way to Baltimore. One step closer, and I'll jump! Dana, I don't want you to die. Here they come, Sam! I give you respect all the time. What were you doing? Setting me up for the feds. Ah! Shoot him, Sam! Shoot him! Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. My name's Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 15, Her Charm. It's all about witness protection, I think. And the lack thereof. <laughs> we have a great show for you today. We have an interview with MJ Cogburn. For those of you familiar with Quantum Leap Retribution and Quantum Leap The Virtual Seasons, this name is uh, familiar to you. If you don't know her, you're in for a treat. And we talk to her later. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Unfortunately, you can't. Wait, I can't? It has a spoiler level of mirror image, so you're going to have to wait a little bit to hear it. Man. So what is this episode about? What do you think about it, Heather? Well, it didn't make me want to be a tattletale. She's leading definitely a scary life right now, and the Witness Protection Program isn't helping her very much. 
Um, I guess it does make for a good dramatic episode that the Witness Protection Program isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Um, I've seen it before in other shows where the Witness Protection Program isn't quite working, but this is pretty bad and I'm glad that she makes it out in the end. But I guess, I guess it's, I don't know. What do you think this is about? I have no idea. I have a really hard time finding like something in this episode. I mean, of course, it's about witness protection and just probably like an adventure. Yeah, it's definitely more dangerous than some of the other episodes. Like they're running away from the bad guys the whole time. So that's kind of a an element that we haven't really seen a lot. There was a lot of gunfire in this episode. Yeah, he was really careless with his gunfire. Who, Nick? Yeah, Nick Kuchifus. Uh, he was a bad shot. <laughs> For real. <laughs> he probably used hundreds of bullets and only hit someone once, and that was uh, Dana in the shoulder. Yeah. And I think that was completely by accident. <laughs> um, Even at the end, when she was ducking out of the way, he shot right behind her in a straight line. Yeah. I think he was trained at the Stormtrooper School for Shooting. The Stormtrooper Academy for How to Miss Your Targets. Right. Very bad shot. Well, that's a good thing. Otherwise, the episode would be over in the first few minutes. Yeah, I feel like in real life, you wouldn't be that lucky to run away from bullets. <laughs> well, in real life, if somebody was shooting at your car and when you look at the shots of the car, there's bullet holes through the car where they were sitting. So I don't know. Yeah. There was a lot of boo-boos. We'll talk about those later. <laughs> Overall, I found the episode interesting. I enjoyed it. I liked the character of Dana, even though she was very abrasive. I still liked her for some reason. And I definitely like the actress who played her, Terry Austin. She did a really good job, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that the soft and sweet moments that they had kind of made up for her. I like the word you use, abrasive uh, personality. I, I still hated her a little bit because, like Sam said, nails on a chalkboard when she became that angry, crazy lady. <laughs> she seemed to complain a lot. Like, okay, this guy takes you to a cabin to save your life, and you're complaining because there's no food or anything to drink. But, like, hey, you're alive. Like, priorities. I don't know. That might have been her way of dealing with the stress. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. I mean, my defense would have been, I didn't exactly plan to bring you here. Sorry I didn't go grocery shopping. Like, it's almost like the world revolves around her all the time. And she's trying to stay incognito, but still make the world revolve around her. I don't think every episode is about something. You can't always find a meaning in it or a message. Even though this one was, uh, the teleplay is by Deborah Pratt, and she's one of the writers. Deborah Pratt and Donald P. Belisario show the credit for the teleplay on this. So you would think there would be a big message in it. And as of right now, I don't see any big overall message. Uh, the only things I could come up with was uh, doing what's right is important even though it may have adverse consequences which is kind of the opposite of what you were saying don't be a tattletale so we we got two different things out of it oh no i i, I was obviously you want to but if sam wasn't there to save her like she would have died for it that's kind of scary one of the other ones i got out of this was violence begets violence yeah you know that's an old saying but it uh, seems to be true in this episode and the other one is uh live by the sword die by the sword which is kind of similar, but... He goes around shooting guns at people, trying to kill people, and that's how he dies. If he just chilled out and stayed at home, he'd be fine. That's what Andy was saying. She wasn't worth dying for, really. 
So I'm sure we'll figure this episode out as we go along. It'll be fun to talk about after the episode recap. This is Season 2, Episode 15, Her Charm. Teleplay by Donald P. Belisario and Deborah Pratt. Story by Donald P. Belisario, Paul M. Bellis, Deborah Pratt, and Robert A. Walterstorff. And directed by Christopher T. Welch. It's September 26, 1973, and Sam has leaped into FBI agent Peter Langley in Boston. He has been assigned to protect a woman named Dana Berenger, who is under witness protection. Leaping in as Peter arrives at Dana's home to take her to a safe house, Sam is put off by Dana's dismay to see him and bickers with her as they get into his car. Sam doesn't have the car keys and Dana tells him the last time they were under the seat. As Sam and an exasperated Dana look under Sam's seat for the keys, a man carrying a gun opens fire on them from a passing car. As shards of glass rain down on them, Dana, who has found the keys, yells at Sam to do something. Sam manages to start the car and escape while Dana is crouched on the front passenger seat and out of sight. The shooter, Nick Kochifis, and Andy, the man driving Nick's car, soon follow after them. In Sam's car, Sam and Dana are both suffering cuts from the broken glass. They appear to have lost Nick. Dana wants Sam to take her to FBI headquarters, but Sam wants to take her to a hospital first so someone can stop her bleeding. Dana looks in the rearview mirror to see the blood running down her temple and passes out on Sam's shoulder. Later, Sam has found his way to FBI headquarters and is eager for Dana to become someone else's problem. Al has arrived and tells Sam that Dana used to work for Nick as his personal secretary before she found out about his illegal smuggling activities. She reported him to the authorities and testified at his trial, but the jury found him not guilty. Al guesses that Nick must have paid off the jurors. Since then, Dana has changed her identity twice, but Nick has found her again both times. Al tells Sam that Nick is going to kill Dana in less than five hours. In another room, Dana is complaining to Greg Richardson, the head of FBI headquarters in Boston, that the FBI is supposed to be protecting her, but she has been protecting herself. Richardson jokes that Dana shouldn't have gotten involved with Nick. Dana insists that she only worked for him. She angrily protests that Nick is the criminal, not her, and now she is on the run while Nick is a free man. Later, Richardson tells Sam and Dana that they'll have a new location ready for Dana in two days, and in the meantime, the backup plan is that Sam is going to take Dana to a safe house in Baltimore. Dana refuses to go anywhere else with Sam, but Richardson coldly responds that in that case, Dana is on her own. Meanwhile, Nick and Andy are parked across the street from the FBI building. Andy comments that even though they've done everything right, including having a man on the inside, they still haven't managed to kill Dana. Back inside, Al is telling Sam where Dana's body is going to be found. Sam asks Richardson why Nick is after Dana. Richardson answers that Nick would never let anyone get away with testifying against him in court, especially a woman. He assures Sam that his next assignment will be something more straightforward and tells him to go down to the garage and see if the laundry truck is ready. Al eagerly insists to Sam that they should change the backup plan. Sam points out to Richardson that Nick has already broken Dana's cover twice, but Richardson responds that only the two of them know where Sam is going to take Dana, so if there's a leak, it has to be one of them. Al looks suspiciously at Richardson. As Sam and Al head downstairs, Sam tells Al that he used to spend weekends living in a cabin outside of Boston. He says that the cabin is where he and a professor named Sebastian Lonegro came up with the string theory of quantum leaping. He decides to take Dana to the cabin to prevent her from being killed on the way to Baltimore. Soon after, Sam is driving away from the FBI building in a laundry truck, wearing a professional cleaner's clothes. Nick and Andy watch him go. 
Then Andy starts the car and they start following. On his way to the cabin, Sam looks at his watch and sees that the time of Dana's original death has passed by almost an hour. He looks at Dana, who is asleep in the back of the laundry truck, and hopes that he will leap soon, but nothing happens. Dana wakes up and wonders why Sam didn't wake her when they stopped for gas. Sam says that he hasn't stopped for gas, but assures her that they still have half a tank, showing her the fuel gauge. Dana admits that her bad mood has nothing to do with him personally, but she hates being a fool. Sam tells her that reporting Nick and testifying against him was courageous, but Dana responds that it was stupid and now because of it, she's either going to get killed or spend the rest of her life pretending she's someone else. Sam promises to Dana that he won't let Nick touch her. Suddenly, Nick and Andy pull up alongside Sam, and Dana screams when she sees Nick with his gun. Sam tries to run them off the road, but Andy drops behind them and opens the car's roof, allowing Nick to stand up and fire at them. Dana opens the back doors of the truck and then starts throwing laundry bags out onto the road in front of Nick's car. Andy loses control and the car veers off the road and down a hill. At the bottom of the hill, Nick opens an official FBI suitcase to reveal a computer tracker following the laundry truck's location. Nick and Andy get back into the car and start following Sam and Dana again. Later that evening, Sam has almost reached the cabin. He tells Dana that he admires her for trying to indict Nick and that it isn't fair that the system is making her pay for doing what's right. They lean toward each other for a moment, then Sam recognizes a sign pointing the way to the cabin. Arriving at the cabin, Sam and Dana look out over the lake and almost kiss again. Dana pulls away and goes inside, and Sam follows her in. Dana offers to go and find some food. Wanting to light the fireplace, Sam pulls a matchbook out of his coat. Opening it, he sees a phone number written on the inside. Al appears, and Sam asks why he hasn't leapt. Al says it's because he hasn't saved Dana yet. The timeline has changed, and now Dana is going to die in a bridge near the cabin. After Al leaves, Sam reluctantly tells Dana that Nick and Andy know where they are. Dana can't understand how he knows, but leaves the cabin with Sam. Nick and Andy reach the side road leading to the cabin. Meanwhile, the laundry truck won't start, and Sam checks the engine, giving Dana his gun in case Nick shows up. She realizes that the fuel gauge is broken and tells Sam that they're out of gas. Back in the cabin, they talk and start to kiss. Then Dana sees the matchbook with the phone number on the inside. She immediately backs away from Sam, then gets up and points the gun at him. Sam is startled and confused, but Al, who has just appeared, tells Sam that the safety is on. Dana pulls the trigger, but the gun fails to fire, so she throws it at Sam and runs out of the cabin. Sam guesses that the phone number in the matchbook belongs to Nick. Al tells him that Dana is going to die in eight minutes, and Sam rushes out of the cabin. Al looks up the phone number on the hand link and realizes that the number does belong to Nick and that Peter has been working for Nick all along. Dana reaches the bridge and Nick and Andy are approaching from the other side in Nick's car. Dana starts running away from them and Nick shoots her in the arm. Dana sees Sam at the other end of the bridge with his gun and runs into the bushes. She passes Al who calls out for Sam to follow his voice. Dana reaches the end of a ridge and looks down at the lake below. Sam reaches her and she screams when she sees him. Nick and Andy hear the scream and quickly follow the sound. Sam tells Dana that he doesn't want her to die. He says that Peter might shoot her or turn her over to Nick, but he's not Peter, and she has to trust him if she wants to get out of this alive. Nick and Andy arrive, and Al urges Sam to shoot Nick while he has the chance. Nick raises his gun to shoot Dana, but Sam shoots him instead. Andy picks up Nick's body, and Sam lets him leave. Dana winces in pain from her gunshot wound, and Sam tells her they have to stop the bleeding. Dana notices the blood on her arm and promptly passes out. Later, 
Sam and Dana are back in the cabin. Knowing he could leap out at any moment, Sam gives Dana his gun and tells her to keep him covered until Richardson gets there. I'll tell Sam that Dana will testify on Peter's behalf, which will get him a reduced prison sentence. Dana is going to go back to law school, pass her bar, and become a senior partner in the firm of Elroy, Elroy, and Lo Negro. Recognizing the latter name, Al tells Sam that he's never going to believe who Dana is going to marry. Just then, Professor Lo Negro walks in. He wants to know who Sam and Dana are, and Sam excitedly tries to tell the professor that their string theory works. Lo Negro is confused, but as Sam starts to say, I'm Sam Beckett, he suddenly leaps. And that episode recap was by Phil. Thank you very much, Phil. And congratulations on your wedding. Yes, we wish you both the best. Hopefully they're taking a train on their honeymoon. Oh, honeymoon express. And uh, hopefully nobody's trying to kill them. I think that's a good hope. Okay, so her charm. She doesn't have much charm. Is that like an ironic title? Yeah, and in the beginning, he says something about third time's a charm or something like that. And I didn't know if they tried to... It was almost the title, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were trying to be a little ironic, but she did charm him enough that they were getting a little close. Right. And uh, he seemed to succumb to her charm. Yes. Him and his hairy nipples. (laughs) (laughs) Usually he's a little standoffish and doesn't want to make out with the chick, but uh, he's been getting into it lately. He's lonely at this point. (laughs) And Al's always there watching. I, I liked that this in this episode at the end where they're kissing, they're making out, and Al's like, and while you guys are kissing, I'll just let you know what the story I'll is. do some exposition right here. <laughs> and he's just not even phased. He's like, yeah. As far as episodes of Quantum Leap goes, it's a fun one for me. It's really fun. There's nothing really serious going on other than a guy trying to badly shoot a woman. And I don't mean like badly, like intently. I mean, like he just can't do it. <laughs> he's a really bad criminal. May, well, he's, he's really bad at being a criminal. Uh, let, let's try to understand this guy, Nick, right? Nick. Kuchifus. Thank you. He's got the hots for her, right? Because he's doing every girl in Miami and thinking of her. Well, I don't think he has the hots for her as much as she keeps getting away from him and it's more like the cat and mouse thing oh. that's turning him on. So she would be Tom? and he, No, she, she would be Jerry. Oh, he would be Tom and she would be Jerry. Yeah. Oh, it kind of gave me a new uh, insight into Tom and Jerry. I had no idea that's what that was about, but it all makes sense now. So maybe his inability to actually kill her was because he still liked her maybe? I think he was really delusional (laughs) through most of the episode. Yeah, this guy's crazy, right? Yeah. I don't know what his deal is. He's like, what? I'll just shoot everybody in the town. It's no big deal. That was crazy, right? Get back in your homes. And he shot over, you know, the houses so he wouldn't hurt nobody. But then driving around Wisteria Lane, he's shooting into all the houses. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, that's not cool, dude. He probably didn't hit anybody. Don't worry. I mean, does he got bullets in there or is it just blanks? I don't, I don't know. He's really bad at shooting. It's not like a handgun where there's one bullet at a time. He's like literally firing off 50 bullets at once. The machine gun or something. Yeah. (laughs) An automatic weapon and he can't hit anything except an arm. That's an old cliche kind of in uh, television writing. People always get shot in the arm because it's easily healed by the next episode. Yeah. It grazes their skin. Right. And let's talk about Andy for a second. Okay. 
for some reason, the first time I watched this episode, I thought that Nick was like not the main bad guy. Like I thought that Nick was doing the dirty work for like the real criminal. I don't know why I thought this. But then I also thought that Andy was Nick's brother. I don't know if I'm right on that. I think I'm wrong. But I th- I want to say at some point in their episode, one of them refers to the other one as brother. But that might just be like a, hey, pal, brother kind of thing. Well, let me tell you something, brother. Yeah. Might be something like that. Or with Scott Bakula's new show where he calls everyone brother on NCIS New Orleans. <laughs> oh, we gonna have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> At least it was uh, Scott Bakula related, right? There was a mention of Louisiana in this too. New Orleans, I think they said. Hey, yeah. Uh, they got shot at in New Orleans, but doesn't everybody or get bitten by a vampire? Yeah, it's a busy town. Yeah, it's not a safe town, I wouldn't no. say. <laughs> not, no. <laughs> not, not if you believe your television. <laughs> For real. Which I do. Yeah, yes. I, I really do. As you're wearing an Invisible Man uh, shirt. You can't see me. <laughs> so Andy... He seems like a really unnecessary character in this episode. Nick could have just as easily been driving the car, shooting, and hitting as much as he hit. I think he was planted there for the ending. Yeah, because you need that guy to tell him, you shouldn't have done that and pick up his body and take him away. Right. That was probably a Deborah Pratt thing. You think during the writing of that episode, they got to that point and then they were like, now what? And then they had to go back and put him in the script. It made sense for him to have a driver being big, bad voodoo daddy (laughs) but i mean it it makes sense that he has a driver well also if you think about it it gives him someone to talk to because if he was by himself he would just be talking to himself a lot which being crazy he could do that but i think it's uh pretty much andy is nick's al so Mm -hmm. they have someone to communicate with so we know what's going on in the story well and also that could explain the fact that he can't shoot well is maybe he doesn't always do his dirty work Ah. That he's the boss man. First time with the gun. Maybe. Maybe. You would think like he's been shooting at her for an entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> and there was two previous times that he would kind of get the hang of it. I have to say about this episode, even though Sam has killed someone before, I believe, uh, I want to say Roger in Honeymoon Express, it still surprised me that he actually shot Nick. But he shot him like six times too. Yeah, it wasn't just a like defensive, knock him out of the way, maybe clip him in the knee. I think partly it's because he knew that he was going to die soon anyway. Well, but Al said either he dies or she dies. Right, because he would have kept coming back right. to get her. And this way, his mission's accomplished. Yeah. But it still shocked me. It still surprised me. Me too. The first time I saw it, I was like, wow, I didn't really know where they were going with that. And, and it completely made sense because he had to kill him. But it was still, I figured like she would end up grabbing the gun and shooting something. I was looking for another way out where he wouldn't have to shoot and kill Nick because I always ask myself, WWSBD. I'm hoping that if there was a man who was chasing after me, city after city with a gun trying to kill me, that you would step up and kill him. I would, so, I would figure something out. Yeah. But you're, you're still not confident <laughs> in the fact that you would kill the man. I don't know. Uh, uh. Man, if I was in his place, what would I do? Hmm. Yeah, you make a good point because for me watching, I'm a viewer watching basically Superman kill someone. But being Sam Beckett in that situation and having those feelings for Dana, maybe that's part of the reasons why they developed the 
feelings for each other. So Sam could actually do that at the end to protect her. I don't know. Oh, probably. I mean, he wouldn't just kill randomly, but this woman will never have to live in fear again. Right. And his best buddy, his accomplice, his partner in crime, Andy, is right there and he doesn't do anything except tell Nick that God didn't want her dead. And so and you, he shouldn't have. He should have listened. Definitely should have listened. But he wasn't going to. There was no getting around shooting him, I think. Yeah. But you could see that Sam obviously wasn't just trying to be a be the bad guy here because he didn't shoot Andy. That also, I think that's why Andy was there, too, because it shows that Sam only did what was necessary. He did point the gun at Andy right after Nick was dead. He shot I think Nick. to see what Andy was going to do. Right. And they exchanged that look. I think Andy was kind of telling Sam or Pete with that look, okay, it's done now. We're good. I'm leaving. Right. And Sam gave him that look back. Okay, I understand. You can take him kind of thing. Right. And I think that Andy understood what happened. Like, it sucks. But it is kind of weird that Sam shot him. But I think it was what was necessary and what had to be done. Andy, by no means a good guy either, though, at all, because in the original timeline, he was an accomplice to Dana's murder. Right, which I think that their relationship is, what would he do? Well, he can't say no to him. So I I still, for some reason, am viewing them as brothers. (laughs) I think Andy should have stopped Nick, but there was no way to stop Nick. I think uh, maybe Andy was going along for the ride to maybe try to protect Nick from hurting himself others oh yeah definitely i mean you could try to help right i just had a thought maybe the reason sam didn't have that much of a problem killing nick is because in his time he was already dead and he was a criminal i think that like morally it's not like he killed a stranger on the side of the road it's not like he just walked up to some guy and shot him i definitely think he had just cause and it was self-defense because Nick shot about 20 bullets right next to Dana. (laughs) Obviously, in the other timeline, he shot her. Yeah, killed her. So it was either... Several different timelines by the bridge, all different places. Right. It was either Dana or Nick. On that note, it was cool that Al kept updating the timeline. This is the first time that like the timeline kept changing. Usually Al at the end reports like, yeah, so-and-so is going to have a taco truck business and everything's going to work out and they're going to get married and life is good. But this is the first time we've seen like, oh, it changed and then it changed again and then it changed again. And then, you know, that was kind of cool. Like minute by minute updates. So technically what's happening where Al is in Project Quantum Leap, like everything's changing around their Quantum Leap bubble and Ziggy's able to research it on the fly. Well, it's kind of one of those things that, well, this is how I imagine it is they're Googling it and the article keeps changing. Yeah. I was thinking <laughs> they have the Wikipedia page open to Nick. Cotifus. Gefiltifus. <laughs> and as Sam was taking certain actions, that page just kept changing, like Marty McFly's picture. Yeah. That was another thought, the Marty McFly picture that I had. But I was, yeah, I was just thinking like the article... Everything was the same except like the time and location kept changing. And from what I understand, everything in that quantum leap bubble doesn't change at that time, but they're able to access the outside world and find out what changes. Huh. I didn't know that, but I never really thought about it, I guess. That's pretty cool, though, that they're in like a bubble. Okay. I think I remember that from the Honeymoon Express episode. 
I know in some future episodes that stuff at Project Quantum Leap does change while they're doing it. So I don't, I'm not positive how that works. So we'll have to wait and see when we get there. Like in Honeymoon Express when he gets the approval and the chick is the judge. Well, that wasn't in the bubble. He was in Washington. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the episode starts out on that same street that a lot of the episodes have been taking place lately. Yeah. And you that, called it Wisteria Lane. <laughs> because that's what it always reminds me of, of the opening of uh, Desperate Housewives. The same house that was in Another Mother. So a uh, very familiar surroundings. A different time, though, of course. One thing I noticed right away in this episode is when Sam and Dana are, like, ducking down and Nick is shooting in the windows, which he can hit windows. You notice that? <laughs> like, they're driving by and he just shoots in the windows. And the glass that's falling on Sam and Dana, or Scott and Terry rather, is, um, of course, stage glass, which is kind of like clear rubber that's broken up to look like shards of glass so you don't get injured. But the thing that I found interesting about it was the amount of time it kept falling on them. Because if he shot out the windows, it would fall, like, pretty much all at once. But it just kept falling and falling and falling. (laughs) Like, I could imagine some guy off camera, just like the director's like, just keep throwing the glass, keep throwing the glass. And you just keep throwing it at him, keep throwing them at him. And they're having a complete conversation as this glass is falling on them, the rubber glass. There's just lots of windows in that car. It did have a lot of glass, but I, you know, and a lot of it would be safety glass. I'm thinking not positive. Seventies. Maybe. But that was just something that I found funny is just the situation they were in and the length of time the glass kept falling. When I was watching the beginning, I was trying to figure out like what he possibly could have done that she was so angry with him. I mean, she's angry with him throughout the episode and she mentioned why kind of later. I wasn't sure if like Pete was just that bad of a guy, which he seems like he is. And she was just mad at him for being a weasel or if she was just like that and he ratted her out because she was like that. So what you're saying is you're not sure if she's mad because he's a jerk, a jerk and letting her almost get killed or if he's almost letting her get killed because she's so mad all the time. Right. What do you think? I don't think no matter how bad of an attitude she would have had, if Pete was a good guy, he wouldn't have gotten in with. Well, but he's not a good guy. Like he's not a good guy. That's what I'm saying. He's not a good guy. So I don't think it's her fault. I think it's his fault. (gasps) Totally not her fault either way. But what I'm saying is, is like, do you think his motivation was like her attitude or do you think his motivation? Like I'm trying to play this scenario in my head. My thought is money. Of course, that's everybody's motivation usually. Do you think if she was nicer to him, though, that he would have been like, maybe I don't want to throw her under the bus? Sure. I mean, if they... Or get her killed? Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Uh, He might have been trying to save his own skin. Nick might have had something on him. Like, I feel like if she was a nice, genuine person, he'd be like, well, I kind of feel bad about her dying. But then we feel bad about her and she's like, you suck at life. I hate you. And you're like, I don't feel so bad, you know? But something happened in New Orleans between Pete and Dana. Right. I'm glad that she's with the professor, though, because this is another episode where I'm like, yeah, but what happens when the guy comes back? At least we find out. It was cool that Sam was like, make sure that I don't kill you while (laughs) after I leap. The whole Professor Lo Negro thing. He's like, we did it. It works. Time travel works. Our string theory. Don't you know me? I'm Sam Beckett. But like like, Sam Beckett. Like. All but the t in Beckett. Professor Lenegro's like, hmm, I wonder who Sam Beckett is. I have no idea. Just because I have a picture of some kid on my mantle named Sam Beckett, 
I'm sure he put two and two together, right? So I've, I haven't him? seen the future episodes. So. Dear Professor Lenegro, on the night that I go back in time, you are shot. Please wear a bulletproof vest to prevent this tragic thing from happening. He's not shot. What are you talking about? <laughs> back to the future reference. Oh, sorry. I was just totally, I was totally in uh, bottom leap. Yeah. I was like, don't tell me you get shot. What? So it's weird to me that Dana and the professor end up together. I didn't see that coming, but I'd rather her be with him than Pete. And this shows multiple timelines because if the professor and Dana ended up together in Sam's original timeline, Sam would have already known her because if he spends so much time with a professor to develop. Yeah, but that already happened. A viable time travel theory. It was the summer right before this happened that they came up with the string theory. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, because he said when they got to the cabin, he said the last time I was here was summer 73 or whatever. And she was like, so this summer? That was funny. So they just came up with string theory, right? Their string theory for quantum leaping. (sighs) That cabin was beautiful, but it was totally on a set. It was indoors. Yeah. Well, because you couldn't, they didn't do very many shots of it, so. But you could just tell indoor, outdoor. It was done nice, but you could just tell. I think it's uh, like, you know, blue lighting versus natural twilight. I don't think you can replicate that. Not easily. No. And there was canned hairy fish. Yuck. I think for most people, if that was in their pantry, that would be the only thing left. I think I would go to eat the shelf paper before I would eat that. Like, why do you buy that? Why would that be like a thing and be like, you know, just in case I'm ever really hungry. Like next time buy the Twinkies. Don't buy the sardines or anchovies. Sardines? Anchovies? I don't know anything about canned hairy fish. I try not to eat those things. My thought is it's like fruitcake. Nobody actually buys it, but somehow you end up with it. Uh, coming from at a grocery store perspective, people buy fruitcake and canned hairy fish. The first house I bought in the pantry, no lie, just remembered it as we're talking about it, can of sardines. But like, why? I never touched it. I left it there. <laughs> so the next person has it. That's so odd. I wasn't going to eat it. There was uh, some other stuff in there I ate. Why would they leave food? I don't know. You left it there for like the Futurama cast to find someday. <laughs> I know we normally mention the mirror trick in this episode. We don't actually see the mirror trick right in the beginning like we normally do. We actually kind of wait until after they're not getting shot at. And it was a really good mirror trick. And Sam talked during the mirror trick and it worked. And from the side, his mouth moving, guy in the mirror moving. It wasn't like these are two different guys. I was like, this is kind of believable. They did good. They did really good. It was very believable. And it's the same trick that they've been using lately and it's working for them. So I hope they stick with it for a while. Yeah. But I mean, Sam and the guy who played Pete, Mark Harrigan, he did a great job. They both did a great job matching their lips because every time I see the opening credits, you see the first episode where the mirror gag was so bad. It was two people. Oh, in the shower? Yeah. The shaving cream? Yeah. Yeah. And they replay it every episode. It's so silly. You're like, remember that one time when we really couldn't get this right? <laughs> Let's show it every episode from now on. Yeah. 
Um, I'm sure there's some kind of time dilation because he was just first starting to leap. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe when you're quantum leaping at first year, your reflection doesn't follow you correctly. But this one was done really good. I like this whole scene in this office. It was nice. That looked like a real building. I didn't look like a set. The hallway looked like a real building. The the offices might have been a set. I'm not sure. There was a lot different about this episode than a lot of other episodes. Usually Sam leaps in, Al follows, we find out what he looks like. They do the mirror thing. We find out what his mission is. The beginning of this episode by itself is completely different. He leaps in, he's getting shot at. He drives, has no idea who he is, who she is, what he's doing, trying to find a federal bureau building. And then Al shows up like it's just it's a lot different than how we normally have it because the beginning has so much action in it. It was a very action packed episode. Again, another example of they can really do anything in Quantum Leap, whether it be romance, comedy or action. Yeah, I maybe they were trying to prove that with this episode, like an action packed episode. It was pretty good. I liked Al's outfit in this episode. I don't normally mention the outfits right off the bat, but. His outfit in this episode, I've seen custom made Quantum Leap action figures and his action figure is wearing this outfit. So it made me go, hey, that's the outfit on the action figure. That's awesome. He does have some good fashion sense. Yeah. If they ever do come out with Quantum Leap action figures, uh, I'm trying to get in contact with reaction figures to uh, get in contact with Universal to start something there. But if they ever do reaction figures for Quantum Leap, it would be really cool if I was wearing that outfit. How would you do action figures for Sam? Uh, hmm, I'm glad you asked. I would do one of them leaping in the white unitard with the turtleneck. And then I would go through and do some of the most popular episodes in the outfits he was wearing. Like, But would you do it as Sam, like wearing the wig as a woman? Yes. Like that kind of thing. Well, that's the good thing about reaction figures is they're kind of like the 70s Star Wars figures. So they're not that detailed. Yeah. Most of the detail is on the picture on the card next to the action figure. I don't know. One can wish. (laughs) <laughs> contact reaction figures and tell them you want quantum leap action figures if you do i think the owl ones would be exciting yeah because he's got the chrome jacket that would be really nice you're gonna think i'm crazy but i was looking at the hand link in this episode and i swear it resembles an iphone not the shape obviously but if you look at the top and the bottom the bottom has a circular button and the top has a what looks like the little speaker line at the top of an iPhone, but it looks like it's a larger one on the top of the hand link. But I looked at it and I'm like, wow, that's kind of looks like a black iPhone. And it, you know, it was like flat with the glass in the middle. So obviously not as high tech because it's just some LED lights in between some <laughs> glass, but it was definitely in transition. The hand link goes through uh, several incarnations before we finally get to our multicolored Lego design. But, and on that note, look at how many cell phones there are now. Like, look at how many Samsung Galaxies they've there've been. Look at how many iPhones there've been. So, so this is really true to life because Al is kind of like us. Oh, the new one's out? What, 6S something? Okay, we'll get it. Yeah, exactly. So, it was funny that I've, I've really never made that connection before with the hand link. And I'm always like, why is it changing? That doesn't make any sense to me. And then I was like, hey, it looks like an iPhone. And I'm like... Oh, we always change our iPhones. <laughs> yeah, so it does make sense. Yeah. 
I want so, it because it's new. What's different about it? I don't know. It's new. It has gold lines on the back. Okay. <laughs> Under my protective case. Maybe he keeps dropping it. He doesn't have a case on it, so maybe he keeps dropping it and cracking the front. So he needs a new one. So finally they go, here you go, Al. This one's made out of Legos. If you drop it, you can put it back together. Or he has different ones to accessorize with each outfit. There would be a chrome leather one then. Very true. Did you think Richardson was the leak, the bad guy? Oh, hell yeah. That was uh, a great red herring. It was so good. I didn't even say to myself, he's the red herring. It's got to be somebody else because there was only two people it could be, Sam or Richardson. And I'm like, it's not Sam, of course, because Sam's a good guy. So it's got to be Richardson. I at one point thought they were in on it together, too. Ooh. Because I believed that Richardson had something to do with it so much that I was like, oh, they're working together. (laughs) It shocked me and surprised me, even though I've seen this many years ago. The first time watching it recently, it surprised me that Pete was the actual leak. It didn't surprise me that he was, but I believed Richardson was so much that I was like, oh, I totally didn't even consider Pete to be the leak. Stanley Brock, the guy who plays Agent Greg Richardson, he's a really good actor. I recognize him from so many things, but I can't really place him. But as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, I like that guy. There wasn't a big cast in this episode. It was funny looking at the characters and we were looking at the names. It's like, who's Thomas? Oh, that's the one guy who walks in and says that they're not at the safe house. It's weird to just have like five or six people in the whole episode. Uh, That part was brilliantly played by John Shepard. And it was about 38 seconds long. But that's how short the cast list is for this episode. Right. I mean, I guess it's not usually that long, but... Just so you know, I contacted all the actors to try to get an interview. Except for John Shepard. Maybe that's the guy I should have tried. Because you were like, I don't know who that is. (laughs) I have to say, the scene outside, after they're in the office, and Nick and Andy are outside in the car... They show the parking lot while Nick and Andy are talking. And I honestly thought that it was stock footage because it was done so well. All the old cars and the old building, it really looked like it was in the 70s. And then they pan over to Nick and Andy in the car. And I'm like, wow, they actually went out and got 35 cars from the 60s and 70s and set it all up like that. Very nice. Good job. Because they could have easily cut to a car. They could have easily done that, but they didn't cheap out this time. And I appreciated that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I I didn't even think about that, but... What's weird is every time they did that shot, I was watching the red car. I kept thinking they were in the red car for some reason. And I'm like, why am I following this? One thing I noticed in this episode when Dana and Sam are talking in the van is she was talking about how hard it is to be in the witness relocation program about changing your name and having to move all the time. And I was like, hey, that's what Sam does. Yeah. Too bad he's not running away from something. He's trying to run to something. He's trying to leap home, I guess. There's a similarity there. He's like, oh yeah, try it this way. (laughs) You think you have a bad? Try it. New body and face every, well, in the mirror. (laughs) In an aura. Speaking of, I think that it's sad that she didn't actually get to see Scott with his shirt off. Because he's like with his shirt off the whole episode and she's totally not seeing it. She's seeing Pete with his shirt off. And I was like, I wonder if Pete's actually like, Good looking with his shirt off. He didn't look too bad, but probably no Scott Pacula. I think that was for us. Probably. The viewers. But like furry nipples. For real. It happens. I think there's a song about that. About furry nipples. <laughs> furry nipples. Speaking of the laundry truck, Back Bay Cleaners laundry truck. There's good that happened in this truck and bad. The good is when they're sitting on a soundstage and somebody's wiggling the truck and they have lights going by them to make them look like they're driving at night. 
they did an amazing job and it really looked real. Yeah. That was the good. The bad part is when Dana or Danny probably was throwing the laundry <laughs> bags out of the back of the truck, it was clearly a guy in a skirt. And then when they zoomed in, someone was like handing her the bags too. Yeah. Somehow Sam was driving and handing Dana or Danny the bags to throw Dan- out the back door. Danny. <laughs> yeah. It was a guy in a skirt. <laughs> hey, it's a living. Oh, wait, that was Bosom Buddies. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I mean, they did really good on the whole thing, I think. I liked how they set up the gas gauge early on because Dana obviously knew they would need to refill. Sam, however, very smart scientific guy, had no idea that they needed to refill. He was believing his gauges. His mind was preoccupied with saving her life. All right, I'll take that. (laughs) But it's still pretty silly that he didn't figure he might need to get gas. Maybe in the future gas lasts longer or he doesn't drive. He might not drive. He might ride bicycles everywhere. Yeah, maybe he's, you know. Maybe he just loops loops around. (laughs) He leaves from place to place. Did you, did, I was going to say, did you just picture a guy like skipping down the sidewalk? Yep. Uh, with his shirt off. I'm quantum leaping. And I'm talking to my invisible best friend. So maybe the whole series, we're just seeing what he thinks he's actually doing when he's actually just leaping down the sidewalk, talking to nobody. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. In one scene, somebody is definitely handing her laundry bags to throw out the back. Maybe it's Al. <laughs> Could be. Holograms are getting more and more advanced. Um, I like the little honeymooners reference. He was like, mm, moon. And she got it because she smirked. Yeah, she got it. It was like, bang, zoom to the moon, Alice. I got that. That was pretty funny. I'm glad he stood up for himself for the most part in this episode because easily they could have made him just deal with her. And I'm glad that he was like nails on a chalkboard and like... <laughs> He kept saying things like, why can't you just be nice? Maybe that was because she started yelling at him as soon as he leaped in. Yeah, I'm, I think that he was taken aback by that at first. He's like, definitely not here on a date. And then once they got in the car, he was just like, why do you have to be so rude? Do you think any of that was Pete that was Swiss cheesed in? Um, No, I think Sam was like, whoa, lady, calm down because I haven't done anything yet. I didn't really see any of Pete's Swiss cheesed in now that I think about it. It's difficult to know because I don't know Pete. Right. But like sometimes you can tell that it's not Sam. But this one was like Sam. I got little glimpses of Pete when Sam was acting kind of bumbling. But that was when I was under the impression that Pete was accidentally letting Dana get almost killed. But finding out later that it was on purpose, I don't know if I was just reading into that or not. That also might have helped Sam kill Nick. You know, like the edge that Pete would have brought to Sam's personality. Thank you for giving me that out, that Sam might not be completely responsible for killing someone again. I know you were looking for one, so you're welcome. It just doesn't fit with my idea of the perfect Sam Beckett. But now maybe there's a reason. And that and Al going, shoot him, Sam, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, Sam, shoot him, shoot him, Sam, shoot him, shoot him. Yeah, Al was really pushy in this episode. Yeah. He was... Screaming at Sam in the federal building. He was very pushy in this episode. Very loud. Opinionated. (laughs) I don't know. What did you think of the whole tracking device, plot device? Oh, you mean the blinky light box? (laughs) 
Yeah, it looked to me like they really got 70s technology from movies right in this episode. Because um, that briefcase that he opens up to find out where they're going to track him only has three little light bulbs in it. So he's obviously going to go to those three light bulbs. What if he had taken a different road? I don't know. But it reminded me of uh, the live action 1970s Spider-Man where they had little tracking devices like that, but only had lights where it was going to light up. Yeah. Old movies did that too with maps of the U.S. But I still don't understand like how that would help you. Well... I guess you drive towards the dot. Right. You drive towards the dot and realistically, the dot should be able to go anywhere on the device. So that's the funny part about it. Oh, no, I totally understand that. But I mean, me and my high tech brain, I guess I just it seems silly to have a briefcase with a. (laughs) I don't know. There's no app for that in 1973. (laughs) There's no app for that. I really liked the romance that was going on between Sam and Dan in this episode. There's very, very sweet moments. And it wasn't forced. I feel like it wasn't a forced romance. I feel like it was very natural and I liked it being there. Even though they were sweet one moment and then she like went back to crazy lady and then they were sweet. (laughs) I think that might have been part of her defense. Like she didn't want this to happen. Like she wanted this to happen, but she didn't want to allow herself for them to get together. So that's why she kept being angry. Well, I think that, you know, her saying that she didn't want to be a fool, that has to do with it too, because... She's never loved anyone before. So opening herself to anyone, let alone this guy who is trying to get her killed. But she doesn't know that yet. But I mean, still. Why didn't Sam burn that part of the matchbook in the fire? I don't think he suspected it the first time that he saw the number. How did she know that was Nick's number? Because she was his secretary. Ah, So he didn't change his number. I don't think he would need to. Okay, good point. I don't think it was as easy back then to just change your number. You didn't just call up the phone company and be like, hey, give me a new number. I think you were just kind of with a number, right? I don't know. My first number was 17. Hmm. That was a while ago. Yeah. I don't really? No. <laughs> it's like, there's no way. <laughs> I was the 17th person ever to get a phone. No. Thank you for believing me, though. <laughs> My goodness. Okay. You're old. I'm sorry. I liked that Dana did call out the whole reference to the horror movie of being in a cabin in the woods and separating from the girl. And that's where the girl gets it. Me too. Because every time I watch a horror movie, I'm like, no, it's not a good idea to split up. Let's all split up and try and find the murderer. Wait, what? No, no. She was smart enough to know not to do that. Yeah. And then even in the car, she's like, no, this is when they're going to hit you over the head. And Sam was seemed a little annoyed at all of it but very rarely do you see that maybe because there was four writers that worked on this script that they were able to not use the tried and true cliches of what was going to happen next but actually reference them it was awesome they did a good job the only other time i've ever seen that is in the movie the cabin in the woods ironically (laughs) where they actually mention no that's what happens in movies and we're not going to do that i think probably in like scary movie parodies too they say things like that but i think uh scott bacula did a great job of catching a gun that was thrown to him haphazardly and falling into a lake and then catching a gun and not letting it go underwater that was amazing and it looked really good like it looked awesome scott bacula can do anything they just write it in the script and he can do it they could write in the script and then he levitates and he would go out and figure out how to levitate (laughs) i'm just saying he's that damn good I like that he says willing about the farm. Ah, because he grew up on a farm. 
Right. But it just seems so natural that he's like, I'm willing to bet the farm that that's Nick's phone number. Yeah. Sam was putting it together before anybody else. He was a step ahead of Dana, Al and us. Well, she kind of figured it out, but. I love the visual effects in this episode where Dana ran through Al. You know, we pick on the visual effects a lot sometimes when they're really not good. Like we talked about in that scene in Another Mother where Teresa goes through Al and it just, but I think they might've saw that air on television and go, man, we need to do this better because this time it was done perfect. I don't think they could have done it any better with today's technology. Yeah, this episode was really good visually. And what was cool is... They were in the same room and then she ran through him and that was just really cool. There was no like cut out lines. There was no double up on the film. It just looked really, really good. So good job, guys. They've come a long way since Al walked through the airplane in the first episode. So what did you think about Sam actually revealing to Dana that he wasn't Pete, that he was actually Sam and there was an invisible friend helping him and just to trust him? What do you think about the way he revealed that to Dana? It was really risky because... I don't know if I could be standing on a cliff having some guy that I think is trying to kill me tell me that he is a time traveler and his imaginary friend is saying that the bad guys are coming. I don't know if I could be like, you know what? You're probably right. I would probably run. Just me being in her shoes. That's what I would do. Somehow she looked into his eyes and believed him. Well, my explanation for that is that Pete was not a nice guy. All of a sudden, Sam's a nice guy, you know? So I feel like the behavior change would have helped explain it. I understand what you're saying. Almost like in Genesis when Peg realizes that he's not really her husband. Yeah. Because as people, we're not our physical bodies as much as our personalities and minds. Even though his physical body is there, but it's covered by an aura. When you act totally different, people recognize that. Oh, yeah. I would say if I was... On the other end of that, I would think it's almost like someone I'd known for a long time was an identical twin and somehow they switched because they look the same but act totally different. So then the only other thing that I noticed in this episode, and we're getting towards the end, all through the episode, Andy insisted that God didn't want her to die. Do you think that was just Andy's uh, religious beliefs in a way of trying to communicate that to Nick? Or do you think that was, again, the writers hinting at maybe this God time fate or whatever might be God? Both. Because I think from the Andy standpoint, he was trying to do anything he could to get Nick to stop pursuing this. So if he's telling Nick like God didn't want her to die, obviously after the fact it didn't really help, but he was that was just reiterating that. But at the same time, it can be taken as God or whoever sent Sam didn't want her to die. That's why he sent Sam back. So I took it both ways. What do you think? I know. So that's... Oh. I know who God time fate or whatever might be. Huh. I didn't... I didn't... I did not expect you to say that. Oh. Well, that's part of the spoiler ending. Really? Who's controlling what? Who's doing what? Do you find that out? You find everything out. Wow. You guys are doing so good at keeping this from me. Yeah. That's cool that we find that out. I think it might be a little bit of both, like you said. It's curious to why they keep mentioning that in every episode. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Stick a pin in it. Talk about it later. I feel like you're foreshadowing. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, we have uh, several seasons to go, so we'll have to see. What did you think overall, now that we've talked about it and uh, gotten everything out, 
in the open about what we saw in this episode. What do you think about the episode as a whole? Where does it sit in your list of Quantum Leap episodes you've seen so far? I liked it. I liked that it was different. I liked that it was um, fast paced, but I also liked the little romance that happened. And I think that Al seeing Professor Lenegro means that that's part of a bigger storyline. Like I feel like that opened it up kind of introduced a new character for the future you know like part of the sam storyline because we don't really see a lot of the sam storyline so i thought it was cool that we got to see another person from his life like another piece of the overall arc right i liked it and it i don't feel like it was necessary to have professor lenigo come in at the end and have sam say oh my gosh it worked it worked but it made me like this episode that much more what about you When I was younger and I watched this episode the first time, I got really excited that he met someone that had to do with the project and he was telling him that it worked. To me, I felt that that was a part of the time travel storyline that was going to start and develop. And I got really excited for that. And then it never did. (laughs) (laughs) It does, but not with him, unfortunately. You don't see him again. Hmm. But it's interesting that Sam has no problem just blabbing about the future, even though if he tells Professor Lenegro that it works, will that change the future and ruin everything? I don't know. I think he was just excited in that moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you be? (laughs) Do I keep asking you questions that are more complicated than they really are? I don't know if I would be excited to see my college professor. Well, no, but I'm saying like to tell him that it worked. Sam hasn't been able to talk to people from his life. He hasn't been able to be like, hey, guys, I figured out that I can time travel because the most of the people he sees on an everyday basis don't know who he is. So he sees Professor Lenegro and he's like, it worked. It worked. I can finally tell someone that it worked. You know what I mean? Is it good timing or is somebody saying to Sam, oh, you shouldn't say that. So I'm going to leap you out right now. Oh. Oh, maybe. I didn't think about it that way. What do you think? It's definitely a possibility. I feel like I'm going to have to watch this series again after I've seen the ending. Me too. But you've already seen the ending. In this timeline. Oh, oh boy. What is Borderline? Borderline is a glimpse into the universe of Firefly and Serenity in the years of the Unification War. Borderline is made by the people who make the signal. And dark places. It's written by Jill Arroway. JillArroway.com And it stars Carolyn Parkinson as Romana Ling. Romana is a documentary filmmaker. She works for a company called Yoshida Kendall Captures. And they're basically an alliance outfit based on the core worlds. So it's like alliance propaganda, except, you know, for brown coats. Borderline's tagline is bringing the border worlds right into your homes. Of course, implicit in that slogan is the notion that your home is going to be somewhere on a core world. So the border worlds and the rim worlds are seen as foreign or exotic. Certainly unfamiliar. I think you can download it now. The complete first season. Eleven five-minute-long episodes. Audio drama, but smaller.
find it at uh, Jill Arroway's website. JillArroway.com Or over at uh, Badger Books. Badger.SerenityFirefly.com This is Romana Ling for Borderline. Hey, podcasters, this is Juan. And this is Gabe. Come check out the newest Baron Space Productions podcast, Thinking Outside the Long Box, where we discuss everything that has to do with pop culture. We'll talk about Doctor Who, Big Bang Theory, Gotham, Arrow, TV shows. We'll also talk about the latest comic books that are hitting the shelves at your local comic book store, as well as talk about the Marvel and DC Cinematic Universe, as well as any other movie that pops our fancy. If you like the blah, blah, blah of two guys sitting down and talking about pop culture, this is the podcast for you. Again, this is Juan. And this is Gabe. Thinking Outside the Long Box, your pop culture podcast. That is pretty exciting, Thinking Outside the Long Box with our very own Juan. Sounds like it's going to be a great listen. Comic books, pop culture. And Juan. And Juan. We are expanding our show line at Baron Space Productions, so it's exciting to have another show on our network. I enjoyed the first episode, and I think you will too. And now, as promised, we have an interview with writer, teacher, MJ Cogburn. This interview has a spoiler level of Mirror Image. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Today, my guest is MJ Cogburn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Albie? I'm doing really good. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You are a writer, and you write a lot of Quantum Leap stories. That would be an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I love writing Quantum Leap, and it's kind of been my hobby for, oh, wow, since 1992 ish I think. Pretty much uh, right in the heyday of Quantum Leap when it was originally airing. Oh, yeah. I fell in love with the show. Um, I was over at a friend of mine's house spending the night, and uh, next thing I know, they're like, hey, you want to watch this show called Quantum Leap? It's like, "Uh, sure, I've never seen it before. And I fell in love with it in mid-season. I think it was season one, late in season one. So I didn't even understand how he was doing it or who this Al guy was at first. I was just like, oh, I like this show. When does it come on? (laughs) What specifically about Quantum Leap made you fall in love with it? Well, it was the idea of being able to go back in time and meeting the people, being able to interact with them. The whole concept of writing that right you know, putting things right that once went wrong, that was the love of it. I mean, what a show for Scott Bakula. He had to have lucked into that. Could you tell us a little bit about the stories you've written and uh, how they take place in the Quantum Leap universe and a little bit more about them in case people haven't found your work and are looking for it? It all started when there was a website that was talking about virtual seasons. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I could do Quantum Leap. 
Next thing I know, one of the guys there said, hey, let me get you in touch with another quantum leap writer and maybe I can work together. I was like, sure, why not? So AJ Burfield and I got together. She lives in California. I live in Texas. It was done via text mails and ICQ, if anybody remembers that one. And next thing I know, we're, we've had, we've got the story written and it just went from there. The story that we wrote started as soon as, you know, how the show ended. Sam never got home and we just picked up from there. We uh, had the ending written as a prologue, you know, the whole Sam talking to Al, the bartender and going forward from there. And he leaped into uh, a set of twins. Had never been done before because he's always left into one person. And we kind of had it to where there was a good side and a bad side, the good seed and the bad seed, and how he figured out what he needed to do to leap. And, of course, with all the faux pas from Siggy, it fixes itself out in the end, but I'm not going to ruin it by telling you the whole plot. But um, from then, it just kind of matriculated. She would write an episode and I would write an episode. And we decided to put it up on our website and through this one particular virtual seasons thing. And that's when I found Brian Green. And he is another big fan of Quantum Leap. And he has his website. And I asked him if he wouldn't mind hosting the virtual seasons. And he said, sure, why not? Next thing I know, I'm putting them on his website. And up until this point where we are, we started on season six. And I think we're up to season 15. Wow. Yeah. And it's between, you know, the first year was like, oh, 18 episodes. Because we were like, ah. I was running out of things to write about. She was running out of things to write about. And we would invite people in to write a story. And the next thing we knew, we had a whole bunch of writers. And we got to the point where we were putting out 32 episodes a year following the canon. If it already had been written, you couldn't go back and change it. Like if I had him leap into a teacher, which I had him do that before, he couldn't write it to where he couldn't be at that teacher. So we had to make sure that everything kind of fell into canon. We actually had a frequent answered questions <laughs> on the website that spurred all the way back, not only the series itself, but to certain episodes so that people would know this is what happened in this episode. And this is what happened in this episode so that, you know, people wouldn't get all confused. Brian is a great guy. Uh, he helps us out behind the scenes. I love his website, too. That's a website I used to go to all the time for my Quantum Leap needs. That's Al's Place, right? Mm-hmm. com. Yeah. So if you haven't checked it out, that's a great place to go for some Quantum Leap information. What are some of your favorite stories that you have written? I mean, without spoiling them for people, I'm very interested in this. This sounds uh, very interesting to me because we only have those five seasons of Quantum Leap and a few novels and a few comic books. Well, um, I've written so many. Okay, there are a couple of favorite ones that I've written. The very first one that I kind of based on reality to some certain extent was one called Queen of the Night. And it's 
not what you think. Hmm. <laughs> he goes from, of course, you know, the quantum leap, he goes from this to that to another. Um, from a radio disc jockey to a priest to a boxer to a chimpanzee and now into a bodysuit, a mascot, a hippo. Um, <laughs> I was actually working at Hutto Hippo, the home of the hippos here in Texas. And I was a teacher, math at the time. And the cheerleading squad wanted a teacher to get into the mascot uniform. And they were like, hey, Miss Cogburn, would you like to be the hippo this week? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> so they got me into the hippo outfit. And next thing I know, I'm in front of the student body in this outfit. <laughs> you know, I used that experience that I had and put it into the story. So, I mean, it's not true real life stuff that happened to me, but but idea that's there behind it is what I had fun with. Well, they say write what you know, right? Yeah. You always write what you know. If you don't write what you know, it will not come out sounding right, period, in this statement. The other one that I really enjoyed writing, I mean, it's hard to just pick one or two. Another one was one called One Voice Was Heard, and it's about how Sam leaps in to save the future of a five-year-old girl. And with a little help, of course, from Al, he's able to save her life in the future, but are they really done with helping her? And I tend to find a song title that I like and try to base something off of that, you know, just from the title of the song. And I think that was a song title, One Voice Was Heard. So it's all about what motivates you to write. If it's a TV show or the stuff that happens to you in real life, which, boy, there are some things that I could write. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get a lot of feedback from your writing? Do you get, like, positive feedback? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The way the website is set up, you can go in, read it online, or you could print it out. Either way, it's up to you. And if you decide to read it online, when you scroll down to the very bottom and you've already read the whole thing, there's a little link at the bottom that says you can email me or you can rate this episode. And what the link for the rate this episode does is it sends it back to the quantumleapalsplace.com message board where it allows you to put in your comments about how that one particular episode affected you. If you didn't like it, you know, or if you saw down a little mistake in there and you wanted us to fix it, you know, whatever the case may be, you could write what you wanted to say. And yeah, getting a negative comment hurts a little, but I'd rather have some kind of comment than not a comment at all. I mean, criticism, as long as it's constructive, is good. If you're just going to criticize just to criticize, I can't stop you, but <laughs> I'd rather give more constructive criticism anyway. So, oh, there's one thing that I didn't tell you about the stories. All right. I forgot about this. Like, we have the prologue, which is, of course, for the very first story um, that we did, we had the prologue being the ending from season five, where Sam and the bartender are talking, and then he leaps, and then he lands wherever we have him land, right? Mm -hmm. At the very end of every story, there's an epilogue, 
And the epilogue is the beginning of the next story. So that in the show, Sam would always leap in and hear his, oh boy, or whatever was going on, however he said it, his little oh boy comment. That's what we did for this as well. You know, it was just so that you would come back the next week going, oh, I want to see what happens now. You mentioned that you and the other writer took turns doing that. Now, did you talk about what the next story was going to be, or was it kind of like a challenge to the next person where you left the last episode off? Oh, well, see, that's the thing. If whatever story came next, her beginning would be my ending. Oh. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just uh, was wondering who came up with the next story. At first, it was a lot of going back and forth of how we were going to end the stories. Were we just going to have it end with him going, oh boy, and then figuring out what's going to happen next? Or were we going to actually go in and like giving the readers something else to kind of get that, come back and see what's going to happen next week type thing that they always do on Quantum Leap. That's one of my favorite parts, I think, of Quantum Leap, besides, of course, the characters and the stories and how awesome it is, is that little tease that it continues and this is the situation. So um, that's awesome that you included that in the stories. Oh, thank you. And we had fun when, when we did this. And when AJ couldn't write anymore, by that time, I had Elise Cryick and so many other awesome writers with us. There were so many, it was hard to keep track and what was really neat about the whole thing is that, you know, somebody would send the story in and I'd read it and go, oh, my God, I can't believe they went there with him. You know, I have to make sure that this one gets in there. And then, of course, we could get so many stories behind or I'd get so many stories behind. I had to figure out, OK, which one's going to go next? Because we had so many people like Elise, for example, she would write a three-part story. And so you'd have a part one, part two, part three. Well, you couldn't put them out of order because they had to go in order. So you'd have almost a month of stories written right there waiting for you. And then you're like, okay, what's uh, going to come after hers? Well, got to read ahead. And they got to the point where I was putting so much work into the stories and the website and everything else that I had to leave my family alone. And that was something that I wasn't going to do. I mean, Quantum Leap is a big family-oriented show, and I wasn't going to let my family get left behind because of something that was just a hobby of mine. And I know that I haven't done a lot of writing in the past couple of years, for sure. But when you have two young boys who are now 18 that are going into the Navy, issues with back pain, still having to work, <laughs> um, other family issues that have to have my attention, and then maybe I can get back to it. But for right now, I'm going to have to still stay with my head down. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Family always comes first. Most definitely. When I first heard of you was as the writer of Quantum Retribution. How did the writing of the virtual episodes turn into an audio drama about Quantum Leap? <laughs> well, it all kind of started when Aurora McPherson wanted to do Quantum Leap. I think it was called an alternate universe uh, where Sam was supposed to go out and do something kind of weird. And I was asking her about what she was doing and how she was doing it. And next thing I know, 
And she sent me a program and I started putting sound effects together and doing quantum leap audio, which you can find in Al's place as well. But it started out with just doing little stuff with her and it grew from there. And I never knew that this little bitty thing, this writing as a hobby, would lead me to find out what I'm really capable of doing with audio. Being able to find people to play a part and play them so well, one, and being able to make it sound like you're in this other realm and having fun at it, it's just kind of enthralling and exhilarating. It's like I'm um, Frankenstein. I'm not Frankenstein, but I'm the doctor making the Frankenstein, if that makes any sense. Yes. So I don't know if I really tied QR in with that, but I kind of did, I guess. So you not only wrote the show, you actually did a lot of the audio production for it. Yes, because I wanted it to sound a certain way, and I didn't want anybody else to do it. I know what that's like. <laughs> um, uh, just a geeky technical question, um, because that's what I do as my passion is audio. Uh, what programs did you use and uh, how did uh, you go about doing it? I use Adobe Audition. Mm-hmm. And since it's a multi-track program, you know, you can slide things in and out and figure out how you want it to sound. That just came from sitting down and playing with it. And so... I had started off just playing, and next thing I know, I got in with Darker Projects. And after Darker Projects, uh, Chris Snyder at Darker Projects got me involved with Colonial Radio Theater on the Air with Jerry Robbins. And I'm just, like, enthralled with doing this stuff because now I'm earning some money on the side doing something that I love to do. Very nice. Yes, great job. I mean, the audio quality and the production quality of Quantum Retribution is uh, amazing. And that was your first time doing it? Well, no. The first time, if you want to listen to something that was kind of like before QR, that's over at Al's place, it's the Quantum Leap Radio Files. What's that about? It's it's where you go to listen to like little bitty stories that people have written. And I mean... Beauty Beauty stories. Like, there's one called the Calavici Journals, uh, Remembering Miracles of Love, the Calavici Fight. The one that I wrote was called The Impossible Dream, and they were released back in 2003 or 2004. And that was some of the very first stuff that I started to mix or produce, rather, because, you know, I, I just went back and was playing around. Next thing I know, I was like, ooh, listen to what I got. <laughs> it was like a little kid showing their parents their their first color book, you know. It was just something that I was like, oh, look what I can do. And next thing I knew, you know, Elise and I started writing Quantum Retribution, and we we're still writing stuff. And who knows when this is all going to be done. We might be little old ladies at 99 <laughs> Still writing. Who knows? Without spoiling Quantum Retribution too much, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the story? Well, to every coin, there is an opposite side of every coin. On one side, you have Al and Sam, the good guys. And on the back side, you have Zoe, Aaliyah, and Lothus. And, of course, they are the evil leapers. Well, you can't just have evil leapers and not have any kind of backstory on them. Superman and Lex Luthor, you know how Lex Luthor got there because of 
their whole story. And you learn about it as this movie goes on. But they never truly told us everything about Zoe or Aaliyah or Lothos, how they come about. They, they just kind of showed up one day and screwed up Sam's idea. And they said, we're always going to come back and change the things that you just changed. Go, okay. How'd they even know about it? So Elise and I figured out, well, let's go deeper into that side of the coin. Let's figure out how we think it happened. So on this small little island <laughs> out in the Pacific somewhere, there is Dr. Nathaniel Lawsonman. And he has come up with his own program. And he uses his own people who he, if they don't do what he wants them to do, he tortures them in his project. So everything that deals with Lassos and his clan or kin, however you want to put it, is all on this island. And some of these people that live in this particular facility, some of them are there by their choice. Some of them were born there. They don't know anything different. So this group of people, they all have different jobs to perform. Some are nurses and doctors, some are leapers, some are observers, and they're going about their life doing what Lothos wants them to do. And we just created this whole little system and people seem to like it. There was one thing that Elise read somewhere and she still laughs about it to this day. The comment was, quantum retribution is my crack. Can I have more, please? <laughs> <laughs> And how we write, she would take a character and, like, if we have two people in the room, two or three people in the room, next thing I know, I might be writing for one particular person, and she's writing for one particular person as well, and then we flip back and forth between the third person, and we're going back and forth so much between what this person said, it just sounds just like what Sam would say, or Al with his wacky sayings. We'd have this one character who would always say certain things and another character who would say other things. And I guess it just flows. I don't know. I'm just a writer. <laughs> I just have fun. And, you know, if you like that kind of thing, come on over and join in. For people who do not know, that's available at darkerprojects.com. Uh, Darker Projects, also available on iTunes. I highly recommend it. I think uh, the production quality is amazing. The writing's really good. Also, the voice casting was done very well. Even though these are different actors playing them, you still can hear the original character in that. Oh, yes. Yes. There are times when, like, this one character, the, the person, you know, just like in a TV series, that person got sick, couldn't do it, or passed away, and they get another person to play that part. We have to do the same thing, you know, People step down, they don't want to do it anymore, or something along those lines, you know, it just happens. And we have a perfect Sam Beckett. What I was going to try to do was to see if he would continue to do Sam. And just recently, I believe he's had something done with his throat, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if he can do the part, so... He sounds so much like him. If you want to hear what he sounds like, he was actually on Quanta Dimensional Leap into the Night. 
and that's on the Quantum Leap Radio Files page over at Al's Place. You can get a sample of what he sounded like. Very similar to Sam Beckett, obviously. <laughs> I know I, I haven't put out as much Quantum Retribution lately in the last couple of years either because of family and issues going on, but I'm trying to get that back on since I know people are kind of going, well, what happened? Uh, real life does get in the way sometimes. It really does. You know, it, it kind of gets kind of crazy at times. And, of course, there still is the teaching that I that is my true calling. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Being a teacher and loving Quantum Leap so much, does Quantum Leap influence you in any way with your teaching? Yes, it does. It's funny that you brought that up. Um, <laughs> what I have done in the past is that Whenever we have a day, you know it's going to be like half of a day, and the kids are antsy because they get to leave, and you're just like, Ugh. okay, this is what we're going to do today. Since I am an English teacher, English applies with just about everything story-wise, and if you can tie in a TV show to go over the plot line, that helps. Especially, I was using it to go over plot and everything with special education students. So we would put in a, one of the episodes, and I would tell them, okay, now, you got to understand, he is not really that person, but he's like he has on a coat of that person. Huh? Well, let me show you. Like the um, one of the ones when he leaped into a woman the very first time. And they see him walking in shoes that obviously are very uncomfortable. He's in a dress, and they're cracking up. They love it because they're like, he's a woman. No, he's not a woman. He's a man in a woman's outfit. And then once you get past that, and you say, okay, now who's the protagonist? Well, of course, Sam is. Who's the antagonist? Or who's the bad guy in this episode? And next thing you know, you know, you got the kids because they're already cracking up at the guy in the dress. Once you get them interested in it, you got them. Then you use it to help pull them in and say, okay, what's going on? Why did he do that? How is he going to help this character? Did he help the character? Yes, what did he do? You know, so you're going through that whole plot line. What was the rising action? What was the climax? What was the falling action? What was the resolution? And they, you know, we go through the whole thing and we talk about it. And then the very next time we have a like a short day or something again, hey, Miss Cogburn, can we watch another episode of Quarmy? Yeah, I guess so. Why? Did you like that one episode? Yeah. Okay. Let me make sure that I bring, you know, that I have it here. But, you know, we're going to have to go through the plot line again. Okay. And what's funny is back in, wow, 2009, I was lucky enough that I was able to go to the Quantum Leap Convention, the 20-year reunion, and I got to meet Scott. But before I got to meet him, they were doing one of the questions and answers sections. And, you know, everybody was clapping for all those famous actors were up on the stage. And one of them just happened to be Carolyn Seymour. She played Zoe in the show. And when we're writing, we think of her as, in Quantum Retribution, as Zoe Malvison. Anyway, she's up there, and along with a couple of others, and I can't remember all who were there, but I, I just felt honored to be there because here I am. I'm standing up ready to ask my question, and 
it wasn't even really a true question, really. It was just a, I wanted to thank you guys so much for all of your effort in the show because I do use it in school and thank you so much for doing that. I had mentioned the school issue in a different panel and as I was saying thank you, I was about to go sit down and one of the actors pointed out, he said, hey, are you the one who uses quantum leap in your class? And I said, yes, sir. And next thing I know, he has me explain how I do it. And I did. And I said, you know, I just use it to help with plot. And I just really thank you guys for everything. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have something to actually go back to that is really child-friendly and family-oriented that I could use. And, you know, here we are supposed to be clapping for them. And Carolyn Seymour says to me, well, we should be thankful to you for teaching the children what they need to learn instead of clapping for us. And next thing I know, they're clapping for me. And I lost it. Wow. I absolutely lost it. Um, And I cried. You know, I went to go sit back down. And later on, I got a picture with Carolyn Seymour. And as I was talking to her beforehand, I told her, I said, you made me cry. And I'll never forget that. And... She said, well, that's what I'm here for, aren't I? <laughs> so <laughs> That's an amazing validation of all the work you do. I just do it because I love it. I love the kids. You know, you can't teach without loving the people that you're teaching. Because if you don't care about the kids, how can you teach them anything? And so I guess that's why I liked it so much and continue to like it. So uh, we're both big Quantum Leap fans. Yes, we are. What are some of your favorite moments from Quantum Leap? My absolute favorite is when Scott Bakula is sitting in a chair eating jello and onions and saying that he's pregnant and cracking up over it. <laughs> that episode, I don't know how many times I rewounded that episode and just watch that little bit over and over and over again, I'm sure I probably broke my VCR because that just one little bit tore me up. I could not take it. I laughed so hard because, of course, that's the episode where he's a pregnant teenager and it's just hilarious. (laughs) Look at me. I'm pregnant. (laughs) And he starts cracking up. And Al is just completely, no, you're not pregnant. So, yeah, that's my favorite one. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today on the Quantum Leap Podcast. And thank you so much for all the writing you do and the uh, production work on the Quantum Retribution for expanding the Quantum Leap universe for the fans. I know you love doing it, but uh, it's it's just a great thing that we have that much more out there to read and enjoy our favorite characters. Oh, well, thank you for listening and reading and, you know, taking the time to come over and everything. I mean, I just have fun doing what I do. And if other people enjoy it, all the more better. I'm going to go read Queen of the Night. (laughs) Well, there is something in there that is not true for certain. So just don't think everything in there is true. (laughs) All right. So I'll put that out there. (laughs) That's kind of weird.
the spring of 1989, TV viewers were introduced to a time traveller whose very mission was to correct mistakes in the past. It all started when a time travel experiment I was conducting went a little caca. Dr. Sam Beckett, the brains behind a secret government project, Quantum Leap. My character, Sam Beckett, invented this ability to travel in time. Because funding is being cut short, something everybody can relate to, he's forced to jump into uh, the machine before it was really tested and can't get home again. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. And I don't even need a mask. Oh, boy. In each episode, our hero finds himself trapped in the body of a different person in a different time. To keep leaping forward, he must correct a mistake made in the past, an experience that opens his eyes to a wide range of issues. You know, there's an episode where I was pregnant. Now, all of a sudden, though, I'm in the body of a cadet who may or may not be gay. And there, in the premise of that episode, you have social issues. Social themes resonated throughout the series. There's got to be some mistake. Biggest mistake you'll ever make, boy. Ain't that right, Toad? But his most controversial leap was inspired by a real-life encounter on a military base between producer Donald Paul Belisario and one of the most notorious characters in American history. So, Heather, what do you think about the real history of science fiction, learning a little bit more about Quantum Leap and seeing Don Belisario? That was pretty cool. Um, actually, the whole episode altogether was really awesome. I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. Some of the stuff I had seen before... But it was really cool to have all the time travel stuff in one episode. And I remember as we were watching it, you got a little anxious because you're like, what if they show something that you're not supposed to see? So you had to watch it first and make sure. But for the most part, I could watch the whole Quantum Leap part. I think I made you skip over the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald part. Yeah. So after we watch those episodes, you can watch that part of Real History of Science Fiction. It'll still be on the TiVo, right? I said it to do not delete. So hopefully... Perfect. If you haven't seen it, try to check it out. Is anyone keeping a list of things that I can watch after a certain amount of episodes? <laughs> I think we really need to start a list because there's no way to remember this all. And now we have a segment from Hayden. involved in making a good television show. There has to be an entertaining story and great characters who interact in an entertaining way. Some twists and turns and a satisfying, not predictable ending. To me, what makes an episode great is the little things. Her charm does the little things in spades. First of all, I love the fact that we're given a red herring as to who the person leaking Dana's whereabouts to Nick is. We're expected to believe it's the chief as he explicitly states that the only two people who would know are himself and Sam. Who would guess that the person in the waiting room, whom we've been led to believe is a good man, putting himself in harm's way to protect a damsel in distress, 
is really the one who's putting her life in peril. That also explained well the mystery surrounding how, no matter where Sam took her, Dana always still ended up dead, just at different times and places. It's a slight paradox in science fiction, consisting of time travel to the past, that nothing can change in the present until someone who has travelled to the past actually changes it. As long as Nick is around, and as long as the Lee P is still in cahoots with him, Dana's fate will always be the same. Take Nick out of the picture, and that changes Dana's fate. Speaking of getting Nick out of the picture, I absolutely love the fact that Sam actually did kill him. This is only the second person he's killed in the series, the first being the jealous French ex-husband in Honeymoon Express. It shows that Sam is firmly committed to his calling, including even the most difficult things to do, like killing to protect others. Without being too spoilery, we can see too in the very next episode that doing his duty actually does take a mental toll on Sam. I really do love this character development. While we're on the subject of character development, we learn a bit more about Sam's past, that his supervisor at MIT was Professor Lenegro, whom he developed a close friendship with. I especially love the fact that there was a picture of young Sam at Professor Lenegro's cabin. It reminded us, as it was so easy to forget, that Sam actually did have a life before embarking on his life's work as a time traveller, putting right what once went wrong. Sam's excitement of seeing Professor Lenegro at the end of the episode is further proof to this. It's a good thing, though, that Sam wasn't able to reveal too much information about their string theory being correct. Who knows how that could have affected the research that young Sam and Professor Lenegro would have had to do so that Sam could leap in the first place. It's better not to risk it. Having said that, though, the surprise ending of Dana ending up marrying Professor Lenegro felt very satisfying. First of all, I'm glad that the cliché ending of the damsel in distress ending up with the hero, which occasionally even happens in Quantum Leap, actually didn't happen for once. Also, it's fitting that it is Sam, who had been helped out a great deal by Professor Lenegro, would eventually reward Lenegro with a lifetime of happiness in a different timeline. As I've said, it's the little things that make a show great, and I find that Her Charm is a great standalone episode of Quantum Leap. It was suspenseful, witty, made to think, wasn't predictable, and it tied everything up nicely. Thank you, Hayden. Entertaining and educational as always. Much appreciated. One of my favorite parts of the show. Of course, I like the whole show. You're not biased at all. It's almost like I make it for me. You do. <laughs> and now another installment of A Novel Review by David Feldman, read by Juan. This one talks about Quantum Leap, the novel. Quantum Leap, the novel, written by Ashley McConnell, published by Ace Books in 1992. Quantum Leap, the novel, also known as Carney Knowledge in the UK edition, 
was the first of 18 Quantum Leap novels published between 1992 and 2000. It was written by Ashley McConnell, who wrote four other Quantum Leap novels, more than any other novelist. I'm partial to the UK title, so I'll be referring to it by such in this review. Carney Knowledge is one of those Quantum Leap novels held in less than high regard by many leapers. This is, I think, because the novel deviates from the core Quantum Leap rule that it is Dr. Sam Beckett's body, not just his mind that is leaping around in time. It was written under the false assumption that it was solely Sam's mind which was inhabiting the Leapy's body, something fans know not to be the case in the Quantum Leap universe. In Ashley McConnell's defense, it should be noted that the Quantum Leap premise was somewhat wonky and poorly defined for much of the series, so it's understandable how she would make this mistake when writing the book. I think this novel can still be enjoyed despite the major inconsistency with the TV series. In Carney Knowledge, Sam finds himself in Oklahoma in 1957. He's leapt into a partially disabled carnival worker named Bob. The purpose of this leap is clear. In four days' time, the carnival's new roller coaster is going to derail, killing several people. Sam must figure out how to stop this from happening. No small feat due to Bob's disabilities causing him to be perceived as the village idiot. If he doesn't follow through with this, Al warns him, Bob will be scapegoated and committed to an institution. This isn't the first time Sam has leapt into someone disabled, and it's not the first time he's faced the danger of being committed to an institution if he fails at his mission. It is the first time he has had to deal with the physical disability of the Leapy himself, and, as previously mentioned, this is because of an inconsistency between this novel and the TV series from upon which it is based. If you can look past this, there's plenty to like about this story. McConnell captures the tone, if not all of the fundamentals, of the show pretty well here. And, unlike most of the Quantum Leap episodes, there are a few sections which take place back at Project Quantum Leap headquarters. All in all, this is a fairly strong novel. I think it's judged too harshly by a lot of fans of the Quantum Leap novels. Look for a copy at your used bookstore and decide for yourself. Until then, remember... You don't need a hologram and a hand link to go on an amazing adventure. Just a good book. to read the books after we're done because i'm really into reading i love reading because i feel like it brings another element to the show you have to kind of imagine more than you would with a tv show so that that'll be cool to read once we're done watching the tv show i know i plan to download some of those virtual season episodes from al's place and put them on the nook and now it's time for some feedback we have a voicemail from phil g'day albie and heather it's phil again it's very early in the morning as I'm leaving you this voicemail, but I have to do this now, because in just a few hours I'm getting on a plane and flying over to America. My fiance Brittany is already there, and in just a few days from now we'll be getting married at Lake Tahoe. So it's a very busy and exciting time for me, but I'm not too busy that I couldn't still pick up a phone and check in with my QLP crew and leave some thoughts on her charm. Since I've joined the Quantum Leap podcast team, I feel like I know the three episodes I've recapped so far very well now. The thing I try to do when recapping each episode is identify the most important events and pieces of dialogue that serve the story and the payoff at the end of the episode. 
Her charm has a relatively small group of major characters, so I've spent most of my time while recapping this episode, contemplating and analysing the relationship between Sam and Dana. Sam has certainly had his fair share of romantic entanglements over the course of the series, but I don't think any woman so far has gotten under Sam's skin the way Dana seemed to do in this episode. In fact, I found it a little jarring to watch Sam's behaviour as he and Dana bickered with each other. However, it does seem that when Dana started talking about wanting to do the right thing, Sam started to see something of himself in her, and his attitude toward her started to soften. I'm not sure how I feel about the dirty FBI agent who originally contributed to Dana's murder getting off with a reduced prison sentence, but I'm just going to think happy thoughts and assume that GTFW knew what they were doing when they sent Sam on this leap. But then we get to the end of the episode, and Sam's brief interaction with Professor Lenegro. Sam manages to tell Lenegro about the success of their string theory, although it's unclear if Sam's younger self had discussed that same theory with the Professor at this point in time. This exchange creates a chicken-or-the-egg kind of situation. Did Professor Lenegro and the younger Sam Beckett hit upon the string theory on their own, or did the older Sam, as Peter, introduce the Professor to the string theory, which Lenegro then gave to the younger Sam, who would go on to create the entire Quantum Leap project based on that very theory, thus eventually travelling back to 1973 and giving the theory to the Professor again? We can really only guess to the answer, but it's an interesting question to ponder. I wonder if anybody out there has a theory about this. But for now, I really have to get moving. The contents of my suitcase aren't going to check themselves for the fifth time this morning, so all I can say for now is happy leaping, everyone, and I'll catch up with all of you again soon. That is, if my wife lets me. Later. Thank you, Phil. A very smart man. He had us both laughing with that, if my wife lets me. That's how it does work, Phil. I'm glad he knows that now. (laughs) And welcome to the United States. Yes, uh, I was so excited that he was coming to the U.S., and so was he. We're like, hey, let's meet up or something. Lake Tahoe, Florida, can't be that far apart, right? It's like the whole country. Yeah, I think Hayden suggested (laughs) as a joke. I was like, yeah, it's kind of like across the whole country. Yeah. On the globe, not that far. No. Driving, a little bit far. Yeah. That's why I'm not offended we didn't get invitations to the wedding. (laughs) After our trip to Atlanta, I don't know if I would drive to Lake Tahoe. I still want to go to Australia. Yeah, we could fly there. The airport's not that far from here. So we're just waiting for that trip. And then we'll see Hayden and Phil. We'll make them meet up. And we'll take pictures as proof that they're two different people. They'll be like, yeah, we're still a country apart, even though we're both in Australia. It's a continent. And we'll be like, oh. Hayden suggested that we meet up with Phil in the U.S. while he's over there. I'm like, yeah, but how would we know that you're over there? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd say we all meet in Darwin. Okay. Phil brought up an interesting point about Dana and Pete's relationship. Do you think a lot of that was from Pete? Or do you think it was the way Dana was treating Sam? I know we touched on it earlier, but more specifically, what do you think? I think Sam saw the good in her. I think that was Sam. Because to me, Pete was a scoundrel. I like to think that there wasn't a lot of Pete in this character. Maybe because I don't want to associate Pete and Sam together. I think that Sam liked her. And saw the good in her. My feeling on Pete is, sir, you are a villain. Yeah, and I agree with what Phil said about him getting a reduced sentence. I don't think he should have gotten a reduced sentence. Well, only people that know the alternate timeline knows that he contributed to a murder. Yeah, but he tried. Yeah, so that's attempted contributing to it. I don't know if that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, but he's still a scoundrel. The only good of it was what Sam did. Judge, I would like to submit these papers from an alternate timeline that shows he did, in fact, do something. Can you imagine if that was a thing? 
Yeah, one of my alternate selves did something. Sorry. I'm just going to apologize for my other self. The chicken and the egg thing, Professor Lo Negro and uh, string theory. I don't know. I don't know how much he affected by saying it worked. Because if some guy just walked up to me and was like, it worked. I don't know if I would. I mean, I guess. How would Pete know about what their string theory was? But I don't know. And what do you think came first, the chicken or the egg? Easy answer. Egg. Okay, I I can go with that, yeah. And uh, we have some emails. This first one's from Jill. I really hate spoilers, so this email would not contain any. David Campiti didn't like Mirror Image. This opinion is not universal. I thought it was brilliant. Jill. I would agree with Jill. Not everybody shares the same opinion on the ending of Quantum Leap. Of course, you don't know it, so we can't really talk about it. I don't agree. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know yet. Write that on that list. (laughs) <laughs> okay things to discuss <laughs> you know i i realized halfway through uh, dragon con that it probably or through the day that i wore my quantum leap shirt that i was really living on the dangerous side by wearing that shirt and i i'm very lucky i made it through the whole day without any spoilers so well it did help when anybody started to mention quantum leap you were like i don't know the ending yeah don't tell me yeah we had one lady say oh i love that show i was like we do a podcast on it and he knows the whole show and i don't know the show and i I think i spit it all out so fast she was like oh good because i was totally gonna say something and i was like good keep it to yourself (laughs) she did say she was gonna check out the podcast so hello hey yeah (laughs) and this next one is from jill hi wow ali mcbeal has always been a guilty pleasure of mine My boyfriend and I are currently in the middle of an Ally McBeal rewatch. We are mid-season three right now. I wrote the Broadway segment on Ally McBeal for The Signal, and you can download an extended 23-minute edition of that here. That link is http colon slash slash pub dot signalpodcast dot com slash broadwaves slash signal underscore broadwaves underscore Ally McBeal dot mp3. So looking forward to the Ally McBeal podcast. Jill. That would have been a great show. Unfortunately, our Kickstarter did not get fully funded. We were a little bit short. We might try again someday. How short were we? Well, we only had one crowdfunder. His name was Zachary Clay, and he pledged $5. So we were a little bit short. <laughs> but hey, it was fun to try and have a Kickstarter. Maybe one day that will happen. We don't know. And if you would like to hear Jill's segment about Allie McBeal from The Signal, the links will be in our show notes. I recommend it. She's an awesome writer. This next one is from T-Rick. Hi, Heather and Albie. I recently discovered your podcast and am marathoning my way through in order to catch up. I'd ordinarily wait until I've listened to everything before I write in, but being a professional stage manager, I figured I'd throw my oar in regarding Catch a Falling Star now since I just finished listening to the episode. I've always felt a particular kinship with this episode since it's my profession. Even when I saw this episode in its first run, I related to it, even though I was only in high school, because I was already working on some theatrical projects and discovering that I wanted to work in the business when I graduated. It's a little thing, but interesting that you referred to the character of Charlie, the guy who was counting down the seconds to Sam's entrance, as the director. I've always thought of him as the stage manager, since that's who would be the one giving the times. However, if the stage manager were backstage yelling at an actor, the show wouldn't have begun because the stage manager is the person who begins it. And if an actor were late, it would be the stage manager's prerogative to hold the show until the understudy was ready. 
Given the evidence, also, since it's clearly a touring show, as you mentioned they're staying in a hotel, the director theoretically wouldn't even be traveling with them. Once the show's open, the stage manager takes over and it's his job to maintain the show as the director left it. The explanation is simple. Have Sam leap in the scariest, most inconvenient time possible and heap on the pressure. It makes for an entertaining opening, but it's always bothered me just a little bit. In terms of favorite shows, I have a list of them. Man of La Mancha is in my top 10, and in 2000 I had the pleasure of working on the 35th anniversary production at the Goodspeed Opera House, where it was originally produced going on to Broadway. I also love Brigadoon, Camelot, The Lion King, and Les Miserables. Lucky Stiff is a hilarious weekend at Bernie's-esque musical about a guy whose late uncle bequeaths him his fortune on the condition that he, the nephew, takes his, the uncle's, corpse to Monte Carlo for some gambling. Blood Brothers, a look at the relationship between two long-lost brothers who don't know the related and their mother and how superstition affects their lives. Not the happiest of nights at the theater, but well worth a gander. I want to say that I think you guys do a terrific job with the podcast. I'm looking forward to your take on Season 3, which is my personal favorite season, with great shows like Leap Home, Parts 1 and 2, Future Boy, A Hunting We Will Go, and Last Dance Before an Execution. As has been noted on the show, Scott Bakula is ridiculously talented, and Piano Man and Glitter Rock both show off his songwriting talents in addition to everything else. Heather, you're in for quite a ride. Albie, I'm a longtime Trekkie and always enjoy when you throw in a little Star Trek reference. I don't tend to get starstruck, but I must admit that the highlight of my career thus far was when I got to work with Leonard Nimoy. Anyway, keep up the great work, and I'm looking forward to leaping into the future with you. T. Rick. Yay, a new listener. Thanks for sending us an email. It's really great to hear from our listeners, and it's great when we get to hear from new listeners. So that's awesome. And he's another Trek fan. Yeah, so it's good to know that some people like my Trek references. I try to work in there somewhere. and uh, You know. <laughs> a little bit. It's in my blood. I can't help it. I have Vulcan blood. <laughs> Speaking of Vulcan, he even got to work with Leonard Nimoy. Which is awesome. Totally jealous. Yes. I haven't even met him, but to work with him? Yeah. But it's cool that he does that for a living and he liked our take on it. So that makes sense about the stage manager versus the director. I had no idea how that worked because I never toured with a traveling company, but it makes sense. My firsthand experience only extends as far as high school musical productions. So (laughs) that really does make sense. Our next email is from Donnie. Hey, Quantum Leap podcasters. I've enjoyed rewatching Her Charm. In my opinion, it has the best leap out of any of the episodes incorporating a piece of Sam's life into the story, but ultimately denying him the opportunity to share the success of his work with his mentor was really a clever way of ending the episode. Donnie. I agree with Donnie. I think that it was, it's really cruel, (laughs) but it was kind of cool that he didn't get to like really talk to him about it. It was just like, hey, it worked. I'm Sam Beckett. (laughs) It was like you were saying that someone was maybe trying to stop him from completing what he was saying. I don't know what that would have done. Like, I don't know if Professor Lenegro would have been like, hey, I can get you out of there. This is what you need to do or or what. I mean, I don't know if maybe that's why he didn't get to talk to him about it. But it was cool that it was like a teaser in there, you know? Yeah, like little seeds of a greater storyline that's coming almost. Yeah. Normally, I don't read our Twitter feedback because we get a lot of tweets, but uh, I just had to share a couple with you. This one's from Sharon Shaw, and she says, At Quantum Leap Podcast, listening to the All-Americans episode on the topic of team sports in high school, I'm with you, Albie. 
Of course you had to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was nice to hear at least one person agree with my crazy opinions because we actually lost about four listeners during the period of that release of that episode. So maybe about football, not sure. I know one guy was very upset and used a lot of profanity. <laughs> I thanked him for listening. What else could I do? I hope that people don't get too angry about what we say on a podcast. <laughs> well, we're talking about, you know, issues. And, you know, I think the last episode, the issue was about how uh, my opinion, people are people, doesn't matter where they're from in the world. They're all trying to make a better life for themselves and their family. So not everybody was happy with that, but that's all right. And uh, this is my favorite tweet in a long time. And I just laughed out loud and I loved it and I screen capped it. This one's from Jay Patrick and it says, holy shit, there is a hashtag quantum leap podcast. I'm in. That's pretty awesome. I know if I had found out about a Quantum Leap podcast before we made the Quantum Leap podcast, that would be my exact response. I remember when I hadn't seen it yet and you were like, did you know there's not a Quantum Leap podcast? And I was like, uh, okay, I don't know what that means. So obviously that would have been your response if you had found one. We have an iTunes review. This is from Mike Stone. It's a five star review. Hey guys, thanks for bringing back some great memories. That was from Australia. Gotta love Australia, man. Thank you. Yeah, I went around uh, looking at other countries' iTunes for feedback, and I found that one, and that was nice. Thank you very much. And uh, we don't have any feedback, but in Ireland, we're very popular. Huh. So I'd like to say hello to everyone in Ireland. You have a beautiful country. I hope to visit one day and uh, keep listening. There are many ways to leave feedback for the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com and find out all the ways. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Please, please, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. And continue to tweet us on Twitter at quantumleappod. We are on Instagram. So tag us in any Quantum Leap related photos so we get to see them. We are Quantum Leap Podcast on Instagram. And make sure to follow us because I'll be posting really cool pictures and actually posted some pictures of behind the scenes from Holly Fields last week. Yeah, I did that little repost thing that they got going on now. And you can actually see the pictures that she talked about in her interview with us where her mom was hiding behind a tree taking pictures of her and Scott Bakula kissing. With Dean Stockwell chilling in a chair watching. That's awesome. Like, where else can you see that? So check that out. We're at Quantum Leap Podcast on Instagram. We are on Patreon. In case you guys don't know what Patreon is, it's a continuing crowdfunding website, and that helps us with the production costs of the show. So if you like what we do and you are able to help us out, go to patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. And I'd like to thank our backers for this past month, and they are Tom Quinn and Donnie. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. And also... Phil doesn't like to be the only person leaving a voicemail. We would love to hear from you guys. So make sure to call our number at 707-847-6682. So give us a call. And iTunes reviews are very important to get us noticed in podcast listings. So if you could go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and let other listeners know why you like our show, please do that so we can get more listeners and more people in our community to talk about and enjoy Quantum Leap. Heather, do we have any Quantum Leap or Quantum Leap related news? It is almost time for NCIS. I am very excited about that. We recently watched the two-part backdoor pilot, and I'm really excited because I like NCIS. I haven't been watching recently, um, so I'm not really caught up on the show, but I've watched it over the last, what is it, like 12 seasons or something crazy like that. And I like the Los Angeles one, too. So I'm sure that I'll like the New Orleans one just based on the fact that I like the other two. And it's Scott Bakula. And the other guy who's in it was in uh, 
Tokyo Drift, the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. And I really like that movie too. So hopefully I'm not alone on that, but (laughs) I actually liked that one a lot. So I'm really excited. I liked the cast. I liked New Orleans in it. Like I like that that kind of brings its own element to it. And I know some people commented about him having like a weird accent, but it didn't really bother me. I was going to ask you about that. It took me a while to get used to that accent. He did it great, but it wasn't Sam Beckett or Captain Archer. So it was hard for me at first. Yeah, I don't think he was off-putting, though. Like, I, I people had commented, and I was, I really was trying to hear it and be bothered by it. You know, like, I was trying to see if I, it really did bother me, and it didn't bother me. So hopefully it doesn't scare too many people away. <laughs> but I'm really excited. The people who brought you television's two biggest dramas take you to the Big Easy. We need you to come with us. Not gonna happen. Ah! Kind of old school. Ugh. Old school still works in Louisiana. part of town smell like beer probably because you're standing in a puddle of bachelor party vomit i'm brody from the great lakes office you look familiar you ever tailgate a saints game i don't tailgate gotta wait on the fbi i'm not waiting on anybody just bag them and go ncis i got a whole new respect for the great lakes office scott bacula you ready i'm good for a fight This town really gets into your DNA. My city, my way. Is in the Lake. Let the good times roll. NCIS New Orleans. We have the greatest lead-in that you could possibly hope for. It's a huge arena with great possibilities, a huge naval marine presence down there. You have the city of New Orleans. They've welcomed us with open arms. You have an endless array of things to take a look at and create stories from. Anything is possible. I'm really looking forward to seeing what our characters end up doing and getting to know each other is a lot of fun. And obviously being a part of NCIS is such an honor. Okay, come on. First one to establish time of death gets one of my award-winning Bloody Marys. By the level of decomp, I'd say uh, two, maybe three weeks. I hope you like Bloody Mary spicy, Christopher. We've started off on a really good foot. We had a great audience who were really curious about what our characters were going to do and why we're doing it in New Orleans and that sense of southerness, of southern hospitality. His own foot. Displays his victims like family. He knows we're close. If he spoke to his father, he's scared. Chances are he'll kill again. Having the original cast with us uh, was kind of cool to be able to work with them. You know, they're like a well-oiled machine, so they're pros at this for sure. Our hope is that they will connect with these people. I always go back to the characters on NCIS and believe that that, at the end of the day, is why people are watching. This is hopefully a very similar pattern. You want to spend time with Pride and Brody and LaSalle and, and hang out with them and have them take you on this ride. Kind of old school. Old school still works in Louisiana. We want to be good and different, but not too different. For the creative team, they know it works. They want to take the great parts and elements of NCIS, pass them on to us, and then also give us a chance to kind of find our own world, 
our own energy, our own style that hopefully the audience will uh, embrace also. That premieres September 23rd on CBS at 9, 8 central. And I will definitely be watching. I will be watching. I think three quarters into the first part of the two part backdoor pilot. I was like, yeah, I'm watching the show. Well, I mean, we already knew we were watching it anyway, but... Scott Bakula. He could have a painting show on PBS and I'd watch it. Can you imagine? That would be really cool. That would be cool. <laughs> like the new Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> TiVo. Boop, boop. Oh, we gonna have some fun. Brother. We would love to do a short form podcast based on NCIS New Orleans. So if you have a business or service and are looking to advertise, contact me at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com and uh, maybe we can get that going. So... The makers of a new game actually uh, tweeted us to check out their game. I have an iPhone, so I don't I don't really know if it's on Android. I didn't really look into it. But there is an app that is Quantum Leap based. It is not a Quantum Leap app, but it's called The Way Home Incredible Time Travel Arcade Adventure. And it's a free app and it's a game that's kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of cool. It's kind of a puzzle game against the clock you kind of have to move the character up and down and not hit walls and you get like points for getting certain things and it's based on like time travel and you travel back in time and so each screen is like a different time period and there's scientists in it and it's it's based on the show quantum leap and it says the description in the app store says as part of a time traveling experiment that went a little caca you are now bouncing around in time, ending up in the bodies and lives of different people. Set things right in their lives in order to get back to your own time. Will the next jump take you home? An arcade game about time travel, adventures, intriguing stories, and great fast gameplay. It was pretty cool. The story behind the game is Quantum Leap-ish. So it's kind of cool that like the little story bubbles that pop up are pretty much Quantum Leap-based. But it was a cute little game. Did you get to play it? A little bit. It seems pretty cool. It's awesome that somebody would put that much work into something related to Quantum Leap. I haven't played it more than the first couple levels, but I I think it's really cool. It's definitely something to try out and it's free. So that's always a plus. So I have a question for you, Heather. Yeah. How bad a shot is Nick? How bad? He couldn't even shoot Dana with Houston's shotgun he borrowed from Sadie and have her stand in front of the Shivero. I don't know what any of that means. So help me God. She just grabbed the gun oh. and it went off and she killed the guy. Yeah. So that fell flat. Yeah, he was pretty bad. A bad shot. Yeah. Again, stormtrooper training. <laughs> For anybody who listened to our special we just released on the Dragon Con Quantum Leap 25th anniversary panel, you know, we took a few weeks off to go to Atlanta, Georgia for Dragon Con, and that was quite an adventure, wasn't it, Heather? You could definitely say that. We are not big city folk. No, you are not big city folk. Oh, you were fine? I was more adaptable. Um, It was still a little crazy. It was exciting. I think it would have been different if we didn't have Rennie with us. Having a two-year-old in the city we've never been in made us a little anxious because not only are you in a city where you don't know and we couldn't park there because the parking was outrageous. So we had to learn how to take a train. There's no trains in the city we live in, like not a single train track even. So that was different. And it was like a subway and I haven't been on the subway since I was a kid. So 
Um, it, it was definitely different. We tried the bus, but then it kept getting rerouted, so that didn't work. <laughs> because of Dragon Con, we were rerouting your bus that you were taking to Dragon Con. Like, but we're right here. Can we just get out? No? Oh, okay. So you're going to drive past where we have to get off to get... Okay. It, it was it was definitely interesting. Um, we had a lot of fun, and it was really awesome. We dressed Renny up, and that was fun. Uh, she cosplay as Sam Beckett. She did the first day, yeah. She was in the leaping outfit. Yeah, and... The white turtleneck unitard. It was cute. Until I decided to give her chocolate milk. Chocolate milk and Sam Beckett white unitard didn't work out. But we we really did have a lot of fun. Um, I think Rennie had the most fun. She thought riding the train and escalators and being around lots and lots of costumed people was probably the coolest thing she's ever done. Her favorite costumes were Anna and Elsa. Oh my gosh, yes. Or pretty much any princess. Or they had um, like animals, like with big animal heads on them, like fabricated heads. It was really cool. Anything like that, she was like, whoa. (laughs) But Anna and Elsa, I felt bad for the people cosplaying as them because she didn't want to leave them ever. So, but I I guess that's kind of what you have to deal with when you're from frozen (laughs) and i'd like to thank everybody who came out to see the quantum leap panel that i was on and uh it was great to see actual listeners of the show there i'm sorry i couldn't stay around too long after the panel because we had to get to heather's panel very quickly across town yeah that was crazy trying to get from one hotel to another and i was really nervous because that was your first panel and then my first panel one right after another they were a half hour apart and Anybody that's been to Dragon Con understands that having a half hour is very limited amount of time to get from one hotel to another. How did your Originals and Vampire Diaries panels go? Um, They went really well. The Originals panel was on Friday and the Vampire Diaries panel was on Sunday. So the Originals panel I was really nervous about because I'm a bigger fan, I think, of Vampire Diaries because there's been more episodes and longer time to really fall in love with the characters. I mean, I love the family of the originals i love you know klaus's family but vampire diaries will always be my favorite out of the two so with the originals panel being first and everybody saying that that was their favorite i was it was a little strange for me because i didn't really feel the same it didn't go as fast the vampire diaries panel was so much smoother and it just went so fast we couldn't believe it had already been an hour by the time it was over and i think i was less nervous during that one too so it was really cool to talk about shows that i like and i wish i could have been on the quantum leap one but i highly doubt that everybody in the room would have been like wait so we can only talk about up to season two (laughs) there were a lot of spoilers i imagine so i mean if anybody came to the vampire diaries one they were spoiled too so uh we were waiting outside before the quantum leap panel started and we met a nice couple and they were dressed as marty mcfly and doc that was really cool it was really cool and they were starting to talk about quantum leap and you had to again say no 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 (laughs) yeah i i almost should have worn a shirt that said like don't tell me someone would have been tempted to walk up and just be like hey this is the ending so uh, i it was really it was really cool to be at dragon con because you feel like you're with your people and it's also really cool to be with thousands of costumed people. And you just look around and you're like, hey, look at that person. That's really cool. Hey, look, it's another doctor. Hey, look, it's a dialect. Hey, look, it's, you know, it, 
every doctor I saw, I kept saying, doctor, doctor. I think the coolest thing I had seen, which I haven't seen before as cosplay, is uh, someone was Lord Voldemort. And they had... Without the nose. Yeah, like they had had a latex piece over their nose, which was kind of like a weird translucent piece. Oh, it looked so cool. And him and Professor Snape were chilling. And I was just like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Because (laughs) I'm a big Harry Potter fan. I grew up with the book series. So that was really awesome to me because that's a hard cosplay to do to not have a nose but that was pulled off really well the originals panel you're on and the vampire diaries panel you're on were both recorded and they will be available soon at baronspace.com our network main site that makes me nervous again (laughs) no they'll be good (laughs) i'll go easy on the editing okay good it was definitely an adventure and uh i really was happy to meet the people i met i met lloyd kaufman i met walter koenig i met bill farmer I met Kevin Batchelder, and I met Les and Carrie from The Signal. I was actually at the recording of the last live recording of The Signal at DragonCon, and I really enjoyed it. I was in podcast fanboy heaven. And afterwards, they were so nice to talk to everyone, and uh, I actually got a picture with Les and Carrie, and you can see that on my blog at albie.ws. And just the adventure to get to that live recording was pretty crazy. But every part of our trip was pretty intense, but it was fun. We, we really did have a lot of fun. And we actually were in such a hurry to get to the signal, which for DragonCon, it was pretty early. It was at 10 o'clock in the morning. So pretty early for Albie. Well, right. But I mean, we had everything else that we wanted to go to throughout the weekend was at like 1 p.m. So we kind of leisurely got there. Well, this was at 10 a.m. So we got there, I think, with three minutes to spare running up the stairs or escalator, I guess. But And I high-fived you because I was like, your navigation skills got us here. Three minutes to spare. Yeah, man. And we actually were in such a hurry. We walked right by Richard Howland, and he plays Trick on Lost Girl, which is a huge show for me. I love Lost Girl. So I was like, as I'm like walking by, I'm like, that's Trick right there. We got to keep going, but he's right there. <laughs> that's the bartender, right? Yeah. Yeah, I recognize him. Pretty cool. Yeah. On the first day, and the, I think it was the first two days it was so confusing because I, I researched everything before we went i listened to podcasts about it i wa- we watched youtube videos i read everything i could i was in a newbies group i i researched every in every way i could possibly research and we get there and i felt like i knew nothing um and uh I think you were shocked that I it, I couldn't figure out where the hotels were. I had to use the the app for most of the first two days, which definitely was frustrating when trying to get from one panel to another. Shocked is an understatement. You are the navigator. I'm like, but you're the navigator. Like, dude, this is so out of my league. <laughs> so once I got the direction sense of where the Weston was, where the Sheridan was, where the Marriott was, uh, we didn't even use the habit trails until I think the third day from the mall to the Marriott. And and we were like, oh, that's what that is. So I, <laughs> I'm i sure there's a lot more shortcuts that we didn't even utilize as much as we probably could have. Uphill both ways. I swear it was uphill both ways. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it, it was an adventure. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, and we did have fun. I mean, despite everything. And I think once you get over the fact of you're not going to get to do everything you want to do because everything is happening at the same time. I think that you enjoy yourself more. And you met Walter Koenig. That was cool. I was having a rough day and then I met Walter Koenig. 
And like, how could you top that? <laughs> I don't think you can. Yeah. And he was really cool. He gave Rennie a kiss on the cheek, asked her what her name was. And he was a really sweet guy. So if you want to learn even more about our trip, we both blogged about it. I blogged about it at albie.ws and Heather blogged about it at stayingafloatmom.com. Mine was more of the um, w- what happens when you bring a toddler to Dragon Con standpoint, but it was still pretty, but it's still pretty uh, interesting to read. But now we're back. Yes, we are safely back home. No more trains and buses and all that good stuff. Subways. Yeah. Bicycles, motorboats, um, jet skis. I think there was a riverboat. <laughs> I don't think there's a river in downtown Atlanta, but somehow we had to take a riverboat one time. <laughs> Heather, do you have any trivia for us? Well, we've been noticing lately that Al has been repositioning himself using Siggy. And in this episode, he doesn't use that. He actually like walks around to get everywhere. And I think that he kind of like kicks up dirt. His feet move the dirt. And he's a hologram, so that's kind of a... Earlier on in history, I think people chalk these things up to mistakes. But now what I like to think is just very advanced holograms that can remap the ground. Oh, there you go. See, because the dirt he moved isn't actually moved. We're just seeing a hologram of moved dirt over that dirt. Ah, see, you have a reason. A, a little interesting fact, September is the third most leaped into month. I wonder if that's just when everything happens. It's possible. September is just a busy month for Sam Beckett. There's some boo-boos. The truck appears to be relatively empty in one shot, and then the next shot is full of laundry bags again. Little inconsistencies. Yeah. And I guess the rearview mirror on Nick's car keeps disappearing and reappearing. I didn't catch that. I did notice that. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Maybe you only sometimes need a rearview mirror. <laughs> he, he, You know, maybe while we weren't centered on Nick's car, he kept taking it off and putting it back on. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing he does. He was like, maybe I like this. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. But yeah, if you watch it again, you'll see it. You can't miss it. Except you did. Yeah. I get, I don't know. I wasn't looking at the rear view mirror. I, mean, I was looking at their faces, looking past the rear view mirror. Sometimes I'm not as observant as I want to be. And uh, Al's reflection is visible in the FBI office a few times. Again, I'm going to go with advanced hologram technology. I feel like that kind of stuff, it would be harder and look weirder if it wasn't there yeah i think in today's times if they were to do that again they might just uh place them in and post all the time right but considering it's a 90s show and the technology they had not that they couldn't do it but i feel like it would take so much more effort and it's unnecessary right and i don't think it takes away from the show that his reflection is there because you know it's a show like you're not like oh i don't believe it now (laughs) i mean (laughs) Like Al's reflection being visible doesn't take anything away from me. And him moving the dirt, I guess to me, I'm like, okay, well, with their visual technology back then, it probably would have looked worse if they like planted him in the shot. And when you're filming that shot, when you're framing that shot, you're going for what will look best on television. I think instead of, oh no, you're going to see footprints. Right. Because back then, one, you wouldn't see footprints. And, uh... I like my explanation about advanced hologram technology. So we'll go with that from now on. How's that sound? We will go with that. That makes us sound really good. Unless he's staring in a mirror. We'll try to let that go. The episode takes place in 1973. And in 1973, there weren't calculator watches. My grandpa totally had a calculator watch with a calendar. and He used to keep all their birthdays in there. He still does. He's got a really awesome watch. Oh, yeah, he totally does. (laughs) 
I don't even know where you can buy, still buy those, but he totally still has it. eBay, you can buy everything that ever existed, including the Mona Lisa. I don't imagine my grandpa. Maybe he just like bought a bunch, like way back in the day, because I don't imagine him on eBay. But there was no calculator watches in 1973. So just a little bit of a timing error. Yeah. Okay. We did find out a little bit about younger Sam in this episode. We found out that Sam used to live in Boston and that he went to MIT and was supposed to be there for four years, but he graduated in two. And Sam was the youngest person to graduate summa cum laude. Summa cum something or something something. Yeah. Or <laughs> as Al would put it. And I think that's all for the trivia for this one. Always entertaining. I love hearing about those little tidbits. Heather, I promise Native Americans. In the next episode titled Freedom, Sam leaps into George Washaki, a Native American trying to help his grandfather. It could be worse. You could be a white man. I'm an Indian. Could be worse. You could be a white man, eh? He needs to get back to the nursing home. Your grandfather and your brother have stolen a pickup. Twice. Assaulted two sheriff's officers and escaped from jail. Now, I hate to say it, but when I find him, the last place he's going to go is to a nursing home. Ziggy says you're here to... I'm here to save Joseph's life. No. here to help him die. Sam, he doesn't want to spend the last year of his life confined to a nursing home in a hospital bed looking like a pincushion. He'll be alive. Maybe just being alive isn't enough. Good life deserves a good death. Sam, there is a man with a badge following you. He doesn't like you. He doesn't like Indians. If Joseph goes back, the last thing he's going to get is adequate medical care. In fact, you'll be lucky if the both of you don't get shot. Hey, don't count the old boy out. He might outlive you. Sam! Doggo! Are you excited for that one, Heather? Well, this one looks like it's going to have more of a morals and messages feel than we've seen in the last episode. So I think this one is going to be cool to look at a different culture. I'm excited to see this one because I'm I'm really interested in it and I don't want to make any predictions because my predictions are always wrong. So I, I, I'm I'm looking forward to it though. As we always are. Yeah, I don't really think there's been a bad episode yet. So not yet, not yet. We're we're doing pretty good. I don't think there's a stinker in the bunch. Uh there will definitely be stuff to talk about and we will get letters. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Is that like a warning? <laughs> Just so you know. If you like my thoughts on football, folks, stay tuned. (laughs) Oh, boy. Thank you very much to MJ Cogburn. Thank you to everyone who sent in feedback. And thank you to everyone who is listening. You are why we do the show. So we'll talk to you next time. I'm Heather. And I'm Albie. And remember, if you're traveling through time, do not step on a butterfly. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. 
Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanis, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanis, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie. And Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. Directed by Christer T. Well, it's like Mr. T, but Christer T. The shooter, Nick Kuchifis. Kuchifis? Am I saying it wrong? Kuchifis? We have a voicemail. We have a voicemail. Mill. Hmm. You just like forgot the A. You're no, like, well, Meh, ma- Mail you? and Phil. Oh, mm. you were combining them. Yep. Okay. I just thought maybe you were like taking the A out of the word. Sometimes I take the A out of words. <laughs> You're like, eh, sounds better this way. <laughs> Made a new word. We have a voicemail from Phil. Phil. Hmm. <laughs> At least you didn't call him fail. <laughs> no, but my voice cracked. What am I, Bobby Brady over here? Okay. <clears throat> we have a voicemail from Phil. You know what's awesome? I totally got that reference. You the did? episode where he goes through puberty. You saw something crack. on TV that I didn't make you watch? I'm getting old now. Uh-huh. 25. Getting up there, man. Okay. People be like, egg, no. <laughs> We're going to get the emails. We're going to get mail. Oh, we gonna have some fun.